This is Jocko Podcast number 415 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. It was kind of a classic Southern California day. And the waves were probably like four to six feet. Not overwhelming, but just a good solid size ground swell. And it was at our spot. Glassy, sunny out in the afternoon, no wind. And for whatever reason, which I don't know, can't understand, can't comprehend, it wasn't crowded. There was no one out. So just Seth and I, Stoner. And we're out there surfing. And we're running racetracks. We call it in surfing, which means we're just catching wave after wave after wave. And I'm out there thinking pretty much it doesn't get any better than this. And I paddled back out from a wave and Seth's sitting there. And out of the blue, out of nowhere, he says, how am I ever going to find happiness? Which is a weird thing to say. Like, we're out there, you know, the 38 seconds before this, I was hooting and hollering going down the line on, a, on an awesome wave. And now he's asking me, how am I ever going to find happiness? And look, he was going through some stuff at the time, but it still kind of caught me off guard because we're surfing and like I said, hooting and hollering. And then he's asking me this kind of deep philosophical question. And you know, so I said, what? And he says, happiness. How am I ever gonna find happiness? And this is coming from a guy who was just a, a really phenomenal human being. Smart, positive, honest, loyal, and, and fun too. Like we were always having fun, we're always laughing, always smiling. Whether we were surfing or whether we were playing guitar or whether we were working or whether we were doing jujitsu or whether we were overseas in combat, it was always smiles and it was always good times. And so now he's out here asking me how he can find happiness. And I said, bro, what are you talking about? This is it. This is it. Here. Now, the sun, the waves, the ups and downs, life, this is it. This is being alive. Then I caught another wave. And he got one and we carried on and he continued to chase happiness and found it sometimes, sometimes on the mats, sometimes with a guitar, sometimes in the ocean on a board, sometimes in the sky skydiving, the rush, the adrenaline, the speed. He continued to chase it, and he died chasing it. Skydiving out of a hot air balloon on a crisp September morning. I like to think he found it. And I know at a minimum he gave me some. But I met many people over the years that have been looking for it, chasing it, chasing happiness, searching, trying to find that thing, that feeling, that emotion. Well, tonight we have someone here with us that's an expert in happiness, and you probably didn't know there was such a thing, but there is. His name is Arthur C. Brooks. He's an author, academic, speaker, and a musician. And he's here joining us tonight. Arthur, what did I miss? What I was trying to figure out how to describe you. 
author, you've written books. Yeah. Academic, you've taught and continued to teach. Yep. Full-time professor. Speaker, because uh-huh. you speak. 48 weeks a year. And musician. You play, used to do that, but you don't do it anymore. I was a French horn player for the first twelve years of my career, from right. nineteen to thirty-one. Right, and actually, we got connected through Rain Wilson. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Who is a the bassoon actor. player? Yeah, no, bassoon player. Yeah, more importantly, <laughs> more importantly, <laughs> and he grew up player. five miles away from me in Seattle. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Is that how you guys knew each other? No, no, oh, no. Okay. We met. We connected about that because oh, we were both okay. classical musicians. No doubt, we met each other at you know state <laughs> all state band or something Just when we were in junior high or something. Nerd like that, central. We're about the same age. <laughs> yeah, we're both. You know, we then we both kind of tried to make our way. Yeah, bumpily along. Um. Well, let's start at the beginning. So let's get yeah. there. Yeah. Um, how you got here. So you're born up in Washington? Yeah, Seattle. I was actually born in Spokane, but grew up in Seattle. My whole family's from the Pacific Northwest. And what were your parents doing? What what did your mom and dad do? My mother was an artist. My father was a college professor, a math professor. What kind of artist was your mom? She was a painter. And was this the kind of painter that was selling paintings down at the farmer's market? Or was she fetching millions of dollars for for their paintings at Christie's auction? <laughs> she was somewhere in between. She was showing at galleries all over the Pacific Northwest, mostly not selling paintings, <laughs> but but occasionally selling paintings. And you know, it's it's a tough life. And what year was this? This is well, I I was I was born and I mean I moved in the late '60s when we moved to our place in Seattle, and I grew up in the '70s, and that's when she was in the heart of her career, '70s and '80s. By the time, and by by about 1990, she was very ill. Um, By the time she was in her mid-50s, she was already experiencing some real, real decline, cognitive decline. And so that, it it didn't put an end to it, but it wasn't great. Was she a hippie? No. My parents were very religious, but they were pretty countercultural in their own way, too. They had a, the great thing about my parents is that they were entrepreneurs in the business of their own lives. And they both, they grew up together. I mean, they, I mean, to the extent that they met in college when they were 20, got married right out of college, and then built a life together that was kind of of their own design. And that was an incredible example for me. You gotta, you gotta build your life. Your life is your enterprise. You're the startup entrepreneur of the only enterprise that really matters, and that's really under your control, which is you. That's the whole point. And that's really, my dad, he was a college professor. That's what he wanted to do. And my mom was an artist because, I mean, nobody did that from her background. She comes from a, a working class background. Her, you know, n- nobody in the history of her family had ever gone to college. She went to college, was an amateur musician, found out she was really good at art. I'm going to make this a career. Mm-hmm. And so we grew up lower middle class, but my parents were doing their thing. And I really admire that. And so we, what were you into? So you were into the French horn, apparently. Yeah, from the time I was a little kid. I started on violin at four, piano at five, French horn at eight. And that stuck because I was good at it. And wait, you don't play any instruments anymore? Yeah, well, I stopped. I stopped in my in, in, in my early thirties. I gave I I mean I did it for professionally. I mean I was I dropped out of college at nineteen, um, then took a gap decade from college. You know, traveled all over the world, <laughs> toured for a couple of years with Charlie Bird, the guitar player. Um, played chamber music all over the world, and then I played a bunch of seasons in the Barcelona Symphony in Spain. Then and then went back and got my bachelor's degree by correspondence and became a became a scientist. But. You're in sixth grade or something, and you start playing French horn? Yeah, fourth. Fourth fourth grade. grade. Yeah, yeah. And sports? Any sports you're playing? Uh, Nothing, seriously. Nothing. I mean, I wasn't, I I was never that good in sports. My kids are great at sports. Mm -hmm. My kids are unbelievable because my wife was was actually a ranked track and field athlete when she was. uh, in for, for for in Spain, 
when she was a teenager. So some genetics came yeah, through. Yeah, so they got good genetics on her side. <laughs> and so my kids are, I mean, my daughter was a Maryland State champion in gymnastics and now plays college rugby. Oh, dang. Yeah, my son was a semi-pro cyclist in high school and then went on to the Marine Corps. Dang. Yeah, and my oldest son, who has the who's the least athletically capable, was actually a, a, a pretty serious varsity wrestler. Oh, okay. Before he went to college. Props. Uh, yeah, good for him. He's just a hard worker. Yeah, yeah. Is killed he, it. Did he did he transition in, into jujitsu? He did not. Okay, and we'll, he, we'll work on that. He transitioned into studying math at Princeton. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's going to need to work the rest of his like, body as well. But that's motto a motto. <laughs> <laughs> So as you're growing up, one of the things I, I was reading in your book, you have, I think the term you used was a mystical experience at the shrine of Guadalupe. Yeah. You're 15 years old. Well, yeah. Tell me about this. What's going on? You, you, you become a Catholic. What, so you said both your parents were very religious. What they were. were they? they came from, they both came from evangelical backgrounds, evangelical Christian backgrounds. So I have missionaries on both sides of my family. My father was born in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico where his father ran a school. And then later his father was the dean of students at a place called Wheaton College outside Illinois, which is kind of the evangelical Harvard. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's a very elite place. My mother grew up as a Southern Baptist um, in, in the Pacific Northwest of all places. And, and, and so they were you know, really religious, but again, they had this spirit of the entrepreneur, the spirit of the pioneer, go, go build your life, man, go build your life. And so I, you know, I sort of, you don't want to be sentimental about things like religion. You want to be serious about something like religion. You get to choose once. That's kind of my theory. You get to choose your politics. Your, choose your politics once. Don't go changing around and converting and being a sentimentalist about this nonsense. Figure out what you think is right and <laughs> Wait, do does it. Does that mean that you're anti someone changing their mind and getting older and, and their views change over time about their political viewpoint? Well, it's normal to change how you interpret the facts. But the whole idea of I go from left to right to left to right, I mean, that's just sentimentalism. That mm. just means you're going with feelings. Look, you opened up with a, a monologue about your friend who is obviously an incredibly meritorious guy, an incredible person, but he was chasing the feeling of happiness. Don't chase feelings. If you chase feelings, you're gonna convert your religion every 10 minutes. You're gonna convert your politics every 10 minutes. You're gonna go with your feelings. Your feelings are liars. Your feelings will deceive you again and again and again. The whole point of a happier life is transcending your feelings, is managing your feelings. That's the whole point. I mean, discipline, which is central to everything that you talk about, it's the reason that, you know, all the cool dudes in America listening to the Jocko podcast, <laughs> is because discipline matters and you need a coach in discipline. Whether that manifests in MMA or math, what it really is all about is conquering yourself. And to conquer yourself, you have to conquer your feelings. And so that's the point. You get to choose. But don't be bouncing all over the place like a pinball. Mm -hmm. That's just sentimentalism, and that's your feelings managing you, and that's a, a sign of a lack of discipline, and that's a problem mm -hmm. for your happiness, but also for your effectiveness as a person. Right, so, but as you learn new things and grow and become older and more mature, and you have an open mind, your perspective can certainly shift. Absolutely, time. no, no, all of the, the, you understand the facts in a different way as you get older. You, the wisdom that actually comes from the, the emergence of your crystallized intelligence, which is something that ha tends to happen in your 30s and 40s and 50s, it makes you see things differently. You're also less rigid intellectually than you've been in the past. But that's different than, than mm -hmm. basing your ideology and your religion and your politics on how you feel. Yeah, that's a different. It's also strange. It seems like people are 
driven to make a statement about what they believe at any certain time. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's all virtue signaling in theater. Mm. A lot of it is, <laughs> which is, you know, once again, it's all just sort of feelings based nonsense. Mm. You know, are you going to be the kind, you, are you going to build your life on purpose? Are you going to build your life with a, a sense of strategy, with a goal in mind to the person that you want to be? Or are you going to go according to how you feel this morning, how breakfast sits and how well you slept last night, whether your spouse yelled at you this morning? Probably so. And, and then, you know, I mean, we live in the world, right? But we can't let that world, what the world does to us, the atmosphere, the environment, the ecosystem around us determine actually how we're going to feel and therefore create our path for us. That's yeah. a mistake. Yeah. We don't want our feelings to dictate our behavior. No. For sure. On the contrary. So, so we're going back to this mystical experience. Yeah. So, so talk me through this. What happens? So, uh, so wait a second. So you go down there. Are you going to church all the time with your yeah, evangelical yeah. parents? Yeah, I grew up going to church every week for sure. Okay. And praying every day with my with my family, and I'm a believer. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian guy. So yeah. you have that going on, uh -huh. and now you get down to Guadalupe. Why are you in Guadalupe? What's going on? I was on? there for a school trip. I was actually there for a school music trip um, when I was a sophomore in high school. And, you know, we're walking through all this tourist nonsense. You know, we go through this boring old dusty church. And ugh, so, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 15. I want to talk to the girls. I don't want to be looking at a church. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we were at the Shrine of Guadalupe, a famous place for Catholics. I didn't know any Catholics. So it's not like I, it, this wasn't registering for me at all. But I was sitting in the church. It was one afternoon. It was the old basilica. The new one is this kind of late 70s or early 80s modernist architecture. The old one was a classical construction from the from the 18th century and the tilma of juan diego that was the poncho of the of the the peasant guy juan diego in the early 17th century the the virgin mary appeared to him on a hill outside of mexico city now this was an incredible thing this apparition of the blessed virgin mary according to catholic uh, catholic legend or mythology or i believe truth that that at the time the spanish settlers uh, the, the colonizers were having a terrible time getting the native people to follow the Catholic religion. Like, it's, it's a pretty bad advertisement, you know, convert or die. It's like not very compelling, it turns out. So the, the Virgin Mary appears to an indigenous guy, Juan Diego. She appears as a mestiza, which is to say a woman of mixed race. Now today you'd be like, oh, cool. But then, are you kidding me? That's like totally subversive. That's like a complete transgression of everything. But of course, that's what it takes. And her, her image is imprinted on his garment, <clears throat> this garment made of, of cactus. This, and it's called, the til, it's called a tilma. He comes back, he shows it, they shows it to the bishop, they, they display it, and everybody who looks at it converts. So in the next nine years, seven million indigenous people converted to Roman Catholicism. That's the story. I mean, that's, that's, and then the whole story is that anybody who looks at it is gonna be affected. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know this guy's like a 15-year-old kid. I'm just there to play the French horn and have some good times. I look at it and I couldn't get it out of my head. I just looked at it. Looked at it for maybe 10 minutes. Left, went home, went back to my life. Couldn't stop thinking about it. It was the weirdest thing because, you know, it's not like that was happening to me a lot. It never happened to me before. But I couldn't stop thinking about the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the tilma of some dude in 1609. Juan Diego, and she was looking at me. Now, of course, eyes following you, that's a technique. Elvis on velvet, those eyes can follow you too. So let's not get ourselves, right? But I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I read and read, read some more, converted. What are you reading? 
I'm reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm reading, um, you know, the lives of the saints. I'm just reading the Bible. You know, I'm reading and, and I'm trying to understand what it is that I was seeing and what it actually means to me. And I'm thinking, of course, about the rest of my life. You get one shot, man. And, and I, I knew that maybe this was what I was choosing or what was being chosen for me. And I'm, my, my adult life is laying itself out in front of me. That's what, that's what was going on through my head. And, you know, I'm 15, so mm-hmm. my, my judgment is not perfect at this point. But I didn't know any Catholics, so I had to meet some. And where did you go to meet Catholics? I went to the local Catholic church. How did your parents feel about this? They thought it was probably better than drugs. <laughs> <laughs> your, your rebellion was going deep Catholic. Yeah, no, they were like, eh, well, you know, it's like all the neighborhood kids are smoking pot, so this mm-hmm. looks like it's... And, and of course, you can do both. You can be Catholic and smoke pot, but you know, the, but the point is that that was, <laughs> that was, it was good. And so, and they also had a lot. Of, they had a lot going on. My parents had a lot going on. They were, you know, had troubles of their own, and so they weren't. I was, you know, look in the seventies and eighties, people, teenagers were completely unsupervised. Mm. I mean, this is the era of you know, get in the back of the station wagon and roll around on the on the freeway. Hundred percent. Uh huh. I mean, it was freedom, baby. And you know, my mom would be like, "Don't come back until dinner." And there was no cell phones. And so we're like, okay, mom doesn't not gonna even literally let us into the house until six. So let's go like, <laughs> let's take a bus someplace. I don't know. My parents had no idea. There was so much freedom, which was great and terrible. I don't know. I don't know. So better. did you get like a mentor down at the Catholic yeah, church? Yeah. The local priest, a British guy, uh, a British Catholic uh, uh, and great guy, wonderful guy, Father Tony Haycock. I remember him still. And he was a sailor and, a, you know, played the guitar, smoked cigarettes. And he, he showed me the ropes. He showed me the ways. And, and he was a real spiritual guy. And he understood exactly what was kind of on my mind. And he said, this is, he helped me lay the scaffolding for what was going to be a Catholic existence. And now, I mean, it's the center of my life. Mm-hmm. And I go to Mass every day. And how many times a week do you do confession? I, I do confession once a month. I go to mass every day. I go to confession once a month. I'm not that sinful. <laughs> so you're 15 years old. Do you have a vision of what you're going to do with your life besides being this uh, Catholic? I'm going to be a French horn player. That's it. I'm going to be the world's greatest how, French how, horn how much, how much do you have to practice French horn? All day, every day. Six hours a day? Yeah, five, six, playing in every ensemble that's available. I was playing pro by the time I was 15, 16. All, every gig I could take <clears throat> had you know lessons with a, with the guys who played in the Seattle Symphony. I was studying in the summers at Tanglewood, which is a big music festival in Western Massachusetts, and so my teachers there were the Boston Symphony guys, and it was just, I was playing every competition. I was trying to win every competition. It's like it's like kid sports at a very mm-hmm. high level. Uh, so you're semi-pro by the time you're in high school. If you're really good at, at certain kinds of sports, you're playing every competition. You're doing it all day long. You're completely focused. And there's some level of natural talent, some level of hard work. It's both, like everything else. Right. It's both. I mean, you with hard work, you can be pretty good. With natural talent, you can be pretty good. And together, they can interact to make you great. Do you get to that point in music, in French horn or any other instrument, where you're looking at Fred and you know Fred, he just has some talent that you don't have, and you work as hard as you can, and he just gonna he's gonna win that competition. Yeah, and that was me in high were, school. Were you Fred or were you? I was Fred, and then I got out of my local market 
you know, and then I in, and I I met real Fred. Uh-huh. You know, this is what happened. So my son, my oldest son, went to Princeton, and and uh, he was a valedictorian at his private high school, and you know, the smartest kid. And, and he got there, and like everybody's the valedictorian. It's it's a thirteen hundred valedictorians. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on. Where you actually you 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 have the sort of collective of the people that have this very high level. And I met people who were you know significantly better than me by the time I left and went pro. So when you're go pro, what does that that consist of? Well, for me, it consisted of getting thrown onto academic probation in my first year of college because I had dropped my required classes and was taking Indonesian dance and and North Indian classical drumming. What were you attempting to study? I was attempting to study music at a music conservatory, you know, up the grapevine here in in Valencia, California, a place called California Institute of the Arts. Okay. And I was, I just, you know, what I wanted to do is play pro. And I didn't want to be studying, and I was an unmotivated student. I wasn't ready. And so I was on academic probation. I bailed, and I took a job playing chamber music with a, a group out of Maryland. And we toured, you know, five dudes in a van. Um, and we, I did that for six years, just driving around. In a, what, what, what kind of gig do you play? Chamber music concerts. I don't, don't even know what this means. Chamber music is small ensemble classical music. Small okay. ensemble classical music. And so we did a lot of world tours, but it was, but it was very, very poorly paid. I mean, it sounds like I did a world tour. I could have a T-shirt with a world tour on it, but I was making fourteen thousand dollars a year, and driving a van with two, you know, a big and oversized Ford van with two gas tanks on it. This is the same thing that like punk rockers do. Yeah, just FYI. Yeah, yeah, the exact same. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, no, no. It's very similar in this way, except that it's classical music, which means it's it's not cool. Mm. It's like it's all of it's all of the things about like you know unsuccessful rock and roll, but not also not Mm -hmm. cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Is there? At least if you're a punk rocker, you're hoping that some label sees you and you get yeah. signed and you make a hit record. What yeah. are you hoping for when you're in a van with a French horn? I wanted to get to the point where I could become a soloist, where I could play um, in front of the solo repertoire, which is most of the great composers write concertos, which are the, the, the solo pieces where the orchestra is playing and the soloist is in front of the orchestra. And I wanted to do that for a living. And that requires you be one of the three or four best in the world at what you do. Where did you make it? Um, there's no ranking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like. But I mean, if you if you had to estimate, how how far were you from? Did you ever get that job? No, I mean, I did a lot of solo work. I actually did. You know, I, I got a lot of solo thing, but not at the top tier. I right. wasn't playing. I wasn't soloing with the, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing stuff like that. I was in the top few hundred in the world mm-hmm. at the top of my career. I left to join a symphony orchestra in Spain. You leave college. No, no. I left college and I played for six years chamber music. Okay, got it. And then when I was twenty, making fourteen thousand dollars. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then where are you uh, living at this time? I was living uh, part of the time in Maryland, and then I moved. I was in New York City, living with a bunch of dudes in an apartment in um, Washington Heights at a hundred hundred and. Hundred and seventieth and Riverside Drive is very Jack. sexy. Yeah, yeah. Me and, and me the and other a few dudes and a with? bunch of cockroaches. Are I, these people all musicians? All musicians. All musicians. All trying to make it. All trying to make it. And you know, like technically, I had made it. I mean, I was actually making a living, and I was making records, and I was getting concerts, and I was getting paid. But it was just peripheral to the kind of success that I wanted. I was just outside that all the time. So I took a job in an orchestra when I was 24, moved when I was 25 because I'd actually met a girl in Barcelona and it was highly motivating to me. I couldn't, she was a, you know, European, which means that she didn't you know, go to church or believe in marriage or any of that, but I've, I've, I sort of figured I could. you know. And she also didn't speak a word of English. 
and and I and she lived in Barcelona. I didn't speak a word of Spanish, but I had this intuition. Once again, you build your life, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to go all in. If you're an entrepreneur in the business of life, you got to take big risks. I mean, hit it hard, do it, take the risk. If you're gonna fail, you're gonna fail, right? And so I had taken the risk by dropping out of school, or you know, the Catholic thing. But okay, this is the girl. If it's right, it's gonna happen. I'm gonna close the deal, and that's it for life, one and done. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Barcelona. Well, how do you interact with a girl that? You don't speak the same language as monosyllabic grunts and a lot of hand mm-hmm. gestures. And uh, <laughs> well, where'd you meet her? I meet her. I met her. I was on tour in the Burgundy region of France, playing chamber music concerts, and she was studying music there. Okay. Yeah. So there's a little common language of music. Music. That's kind of it. She was also unbelievably beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just incredibly lovely. And so we, you know, we had enough, you know, common Latin rooted words or something that we could kind of figure out that I figured out she wasn't married. That was good. It was a good start. Um, and, and there's some alarming things like, yeah, no, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in marriage and, you know, all that kind of She's stuff. She's saying these things to Oh, you. yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like... A mere technicality. No factor. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can, yeah, that, that. And so, you know, I, I got back from, it was in Dijon, in Dijon, France. I got back and I, after a week, I, you know, gone out three times or something. I said, Dad, I met the girl I'm gonna marry. He's like, great, let's meet her. And I said, well, I got these technical problems. I mean, she's doesn't live in the United States. She doesn't speak a word of English and she doesn't believe in marriage. And but I think I can, I think I can. So I put together a plan. Um, I went and visited her. She came and visited me in New York. I went and visited her in Barcelona, a couple of times. As a matter of fact, I didn't tell her, but I took a job in the Barcelona Symphony. And the next summer, I moved to Barcelona. She's like, "You moved here?" Mm-hmm. In the meantime, she'd been studying a little bit of English. I started studying Spanish, and um, it took me two years, but I closed the deal. We've been married thirty-two years and have three grown kids. And our, our, our communication has marginally improved. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you go to Barcelona and you're at the symphony in Barcelona. Yeah. You're courting your soon-to-be, hopefully, wife. Yeah. You're, are you getting paid over there? Yeah, I'm, I'm making a living over there. Now it's good. But it's very, it's kind of a, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's journeyman work. Mm-hmm. It's not the path to stardom anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm off the, you know, I'm a waiter in Hollywood waiting to get discovered. Right. I'm right. more on the path of you're gonna. You're, I'm doing like Dristan commercials now. Yeah, <clears throat> that's what that's what symphony orchestra work is. You know, and, and so you're like, oh, you're the guy that was in the nose spray commercial. That's what it's like to be in a symphony orchestra for a classical musician. You're not going to jump from that to soloist anymore. It, it's game over a little bit. It's not game over. It's game paused because I'm in love and I don't know. And But it was, you know, I tell you, Chaco, I had this experience when I was 22. And I was, I thought I was at the top of my game, but it wasn't. And the way that you, when you're in classical music, the way that you, the notches on the bedpost for your career, as it were, it's a bad image, but <laughs> is the concert halls you play. And so I'm really going to make it when I do my Carnegie Hall debut, right? So I'm 22, I get my Carnegie Hall debut in chamber music, playing with these other four guys. And during concert, there's one thing that I had to do in the second half of the concert. I had to talk about the piece to the audience. It's what you'd always do. You'd come out and tell them a little bit about it so they'd be interested in it. I was incredibly nervous as a public speaker. Now it's what I do for a living. But I was so nervous. So I was thinking about it. The concert was going well. And as I get up to talk about it, I'm, I'm walking toward the audience and trying to you know be appropriately dramatic about what I'm, and I'm not watching my feet. 
And uh, <laughs> I fell into the audience <laughs> in my Carnegie Hall debut. And it was like, this, this is a signal of something. And I, and I took you know, the subway back to my apartment that night. I'm like, God is trying to tell me something. Um, and, and so I kind of knew mm-hmm. by the time I went to Barcelona that it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, it wasn't going to be the top of the profession. It was going to be okay. I um, talk about guitar. I play guitar. Yeah. Very badly. But Do you enjoy it? I love it. But there's, um, I always say you can go to any guitar center in America and right. put up a put up a, a, a sign with those little take my phone number thing yeah. that says, hey, I need a guitarist that can play this song, this song, this song, this song, this album, and there'll be a hundred guitarists that will contact you because uh-huh. there's a thousands and thousands of really good guitarists out there. But a lot, most of them are waiters or yeah. carpenters or whatever. So you got to have some other thing. You got to basically right. like have some creative thing that allows you to write, create music or create right. something new and special. Is there anything like that when you play French horn or you're in classical music or is it like you're constrained by the classical music that's been written by these other people and that's what you're going to play and how much can you very, you know, I, I, I always talk about, um, you know, like studio musicians that uh-huh. are getting paid to play. Like you play the note that they told you to play. That's right. what you play. There's no variation. No here. variation. You play what they told you to play. Correct. Uh, Jimmy Page was like, you know, the famous, you know, Led Zeppelin, but he was a, a studio musician. He played what they told mm-hmm. him to play and he got so good that when he was allowed to do what he wanted to, it was awesome. So when you're in a, when you're playing French horn, what are the options here? The options are to play what they tell you to play and where you've got the job. Where it happens to be, if you're playing chamber music, you play what's on the score. In the score, you, if you're in an orchestra, you play and and you play the music in front of you the way the conductor tells you to play it. Mm-hmm. The only time you have any latitude is if you're a soloist. Then you're playing the music you want to play. You're playing the pieces that appeal to you the most. But you're still telling you're still playing what Mozart told you to play. Mm-hmm. When I played with Charlie Bird, I played for two years and I toured with Charlie Bird, the great bossa nova guitar player. He's the one with Stan Getz who brought Bossa Nova to the United States in, in the late 50s, early 60s. And near the end of his life, he was he was kind of a legend. And and I wound up doing a couple albums with him. You remember Tommy Newsom, who was the band leader with Doc Severinsen of the Tonight Show Band nope. with Johnny Carson? Anyway. I probably would recognize him if I saw him. He did all know. the arrangements of the Tonight Show Band. He, he did a whole album of arrangements for Charlie Bird and some brass players, five brass players, including me. And I toured with him and I worked a lot with Charlie Bird and he taught me a lot of improvisation. He taught me a lot about what it means to be a jazz musician. That's a different kettle of fish. That was way freer. That was that was composition on the fly. Um, yeah. it's, it was hard because I was trained as a classical player, mm-hmm. and so I was I was as square as they come. And so he was. It was kind of an exercise in futility, mm-hmm. but it was it was helpful to my soul <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> I got outside the I got outside the. Uh, the parameters of what the what composers would write at that point. So when when I think of a musician, I think of a creative person. Yeah. And yet you're a musician, but you're being constrained by being told what you have to play, what's on the page. Yeah, that's right. That's and a weird dichotomy. It is, is it a not? weird dichotomy, except that a lot of classical musicians are really not. They're not compositional artists at all. They're technicians. Mm-hmm. They're super ultra technicians. And so you'll find that what they love to do is to, at the highest technical level to play things correctly. They like to not miss notes and not play out of tune and not get behind or ahead in the rhythm and do everything exactly right. It's more like accounting mm-hmm. than it is like composition. You know, yeah. it's like, don't screw it up. No mistakes. So this makes so much sense when you look at 
classical music and yeah. classical musicians and rock and roll totally. people and go all the way down to punk rock where it's like I can play three chords and make a bunch of noise and I'm wild. That's right. It's a it's a different it's a different life. It's a different life and they're usually different people. Yeah. They're called musicians and that's where it stops. And that's about the only uh-huh. similarity. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. And and you know the truth of the matter is I would have been a happier jazz musician than a classical mm-hmm. musician, but I was trading classical music. I love classical music. I mean, I love it. I'm crazy about it. I listen to it constantly now, yeah. all day long. It's weird this whole personality thing. So I, I I think I did four podcasts about this book called The Psychology of Military Incompetence. Oh, wow. And it's an incredible book, but it's written by a guy First, you know, I was, I was like, ah, oh, some academic guy. What does he know? He's some psychologist who's writing a book about right. the military. <laughs> and then, of course, I researched the guy, and he was uh, in World War II. He's a British guy, and he was wounded, and he was had experienced a lot of combat. Right. And he wrote this book, but the, the, the premise of the book is that the military attracts people who have like an authoritarian mindset oftentimes and people with authoritarian mindsets that like everything orderly and they liked high high levels of discipline amongst the troops and they like everyone to be uniformed and everyone to have haircuts and everyone to behave the same way that's what they want and they see the military they look at the military from the outside and they go that's what i like that's what i want so that's what i'm going to go do and that's what they go do and they actually do well in that role when there's not combat happening Hmm. because in combat People don't listen to you. Yeah. Mayhem happens. People aren't doing the right things. The enemy has a vote. They do what you don't expect them to do. And so it's total chaos. So people that can't improvise don't do well in actual combat. They do well in garrison, what we call garrison in the military. In other words, on the parade field, when your son yeah. in the Marine Corps was out on the parade field doing the, the strict close order drill movements, there are some people that are really good at that, but they're terrible in in actual combat yeah, sure. because it's mayhem. They don't know what to do. They actually, there's no rule to there's follow. There's no rules. There's yeah, no rules. For sure. So it's interesting that in the music world, you can have a similar thing where you have people that would listen to music and be like, wow, I love the way those notes are so quickly played and I want to be able to play those notes quickly at the right time, at the right moment, over and over again, very professionally. Uh-huh. Cool. Classical musician. Uh-huh. Someone else that's saying like, oh, I want to express myself. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and that's a different personality. Yeah. And these traits come out even in music. That, that's exactly right. And actually, I was never happy because of that. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I was never happy. And, you know, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Like, it was pretty good music, and I like music. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't happy being a classical musician because I was so utterly constrained. And the reason I continued to do it is because I was good and I wanted glory. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, the limited glory that comes from being a f- professional, <laughs> famous French horn player. You're not going to get, hey, isn't that so and so in the air? You're not going to get recognized in the airport. Your bar for glory was low. This is like, I'll be the Jocko Willink of French horn, you know? <laughs> do you get. Uh, when you're when you're a classical musician like that, you're not getting recognized anywhere. Like no one cares. It depends. I mean, it's a, a, except for like a Yo-Yo Ma audience. or something, right? Yeah. Well, if, yeah. Like that's, the only, sure. that's the only I mean, person I can. If by you're the way. a famous opera singer or something, yeah. you know, the f- there are few people out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Yo-Yo Ma. That's yeah, yeah. how famous he is, yes. right? Yes. I mean, because you know, one but, person I can name. Yeah, but you know, there's other people like you know Placido Domingo that you've yeah. heard of, and no. So, but it's all good. It's all good. This isn't my world. This isn't my world. You know, yeah. I never, so it is I never try and act like I'm a, a super cultured person. I'm yeah. certainly not. You know, today, actually, it's a different world because everything's on the Internet. And so, you know, you can get recognized as a, an author, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, it, you, I'll do this podcast. Seven million people will listen to mm-hmm. it or something. And somebody will in the airport in the next few weeks will be like, hey, you were on Jocko's show. Yep. That's the new world. Yep. Where everybody's a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> so how long do you do you stay on this path? You're a musical technician. Yeah. You're playing what they tell you to play. 
you're starting to feel like maybe this isn't the thing to do. Yeah. And what's your exit strategy? My wife, at the, that I got married, and my wife said, you actually have a brain. Why don't you do something with it? You're unhappy. Mm-hmm. You're unhappy. I demand that you do something. Because, you know, that you, I thought that I had chosen, you, you get to choose once, right? That that was my choice. She said, that was wrong. That was chosen for you. You were in fourth grade. Go choose the thing. What's the thing? What's the, I don't know. I don't know what the thing is. She says, why don't you study? Mm-hmm. She was she actually dropped out of high school when she was a sophomore in high school to sing with a rock band. So she was oh, a rock yeah. and roll singer. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was the name of the band? Atlanta. Atlanta. But in, 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 in Espanol, what does that mean? Atlanta. It's just the city in it. It's just the oh, city okay. in Georgia, but it sounded cool, oh, okay. right? And they, they were, were a pretty famous band in the eighties in okay. uh, in Barcelona. Yeah, they were pretty famous. We got band. some we got some uh, recordings. Yeah, of, that you can you can look on YouTube. And you can see my wife at, you know, 18 years old, you know, wearing short skirts. And, and she's know. got some pipes on her. Oh, she could sing. She's a great singer. She's a terrific singer. But she had dropped out of high school. So by the end of, by, by the time we were in our late 20s, living in Barcelona, um, now married. So, she so was, you convinced her that marriage was good? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, what, what did you convince her about God? That took a little while longer, but I got that sale <laughs> okay. too. Okay. <laughs> now she goes to mass every day. Okay. Yeah, my wife is like she's she's completely committed to her Catholic faith. Her parents think, you know, I slipped her a Mickey or something. <laughs> I was like, what did you do to her? <laughs> and but, her parents weren't Catholic. No, nah, nobody went to mass. No, okay. it's Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. Everybody thinks it's some big Catholic place. It's a post-Christian country. Three yeah. percent of people in Barcelona go to mass, like Denmark. Jeez. Imagine, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so it's completely countercultural to be traditionally religious in a place like in any place in Europe at this place at this point, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, she was studying to finish her high school diploma when we were in our late twenties. And where are you living now? Barcelona. You're still living in Barcelona. Barcelona. Okay. And she's like, you kind of. She's like, I think you might dig this stuff. And so she taught me a little bit of calculus just for fun because mm-hmm. she was studying. And, and I said, this is awesome. This is like doing crossword puzzles. This is, and she said, see, you're smarter than you thought. And I said, huh. So I, I signed up for some correspondence classes and got really into it. And I thought to myself, what this, year is this? this is 1992. So this is mail. Like you're mailing. Oh, yeah. No, there's a fax machine and books Check. in the mail. Totally. This is, this is way pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was an early adopter. <laughs> and, uh, and I start studying this stuff. And I'm thinking, this is the exit strategy. And, and I started studying economics. I thought this is the most amazing thing. Why? Because economics is the, is the social science about human behavior in which markets work and incentives matter. And it was the whole theory of your life as a startup. Mm-hmm. It was the, the superstructure, the intellectual superstructure of your life as an intellectual startup. And so I studied economics. I got my bachelor's degree by correspondence. And then what was next? I was living, we moved to Florida and I was teaching at a music conservatory just so I could, I could finance my education. You're um, teaching French horn? Yeah, at a music conservatory in, in Boca Raton, Florida. So you got like bratty kids in there or is they <laughs> Undergraduates, they were okay, oh, okay. But, but it was, you it know. It wasn't like nine-year-olds? But it, no, 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 it was, okay. a, it was a college. Okay. And it was, but, uh, but it was like, you know, Boca, Arthur and Esther Brooks in Boca Raton, Florida. It sounds like we're 90, mm. right? And we're, we're getting like Medigap insurance sales calls. And, <laughs> and, and I finished my bachelor's degree and I, I go and get a master's degree in economics at the local university, Florida Atlantic. University, fine university. And then at that point, I'm like, yeah, I'm all in, man, I'm ready to go. So I quit and uh, to start my PhD and we moved to Ithaca, New York. And I started at Cornell doing my- Do, do you have kids yet? No. We did kids actually in the middle of my PhD. How, how are you funding this? Uh, out of my pocket. 
out of my pocket. So you'd saved up money. Yeah. Teaching French horn. Yep. And I was I did my entire bachelor's degree by correspondence for ten thousand dollars, including the books in today's dollars. Mm. That's the ten k ba. That's the way. And and people can do it. I mean, it might be 20, but the whole point right. is this whole idea where we need the government to give everybody free college for $75,000 a year. It's complete insanity and it's ludicrous. And it's not entrepreneurial and it's a yeah. mistake. And, and actually it's not free because you got to pay that money back, by the way. And it's going to take you however many years, 20 years. Yeah. I, I have friends that are paying off their student loans yeah. at my age. But a lot of people think that the government should actually pay for it, in which case it's also not free mm. because, you know, the three of us are paying for it in taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nothing's free. And the whole point is do it yourself, build it yourself, don't take any debt, and there's a way to do it. Mm -hmm. If you think about it entrepreneurially. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was, it was very, it was great. I had a great experience. I also was not in a classroom. I had no indoctrination. There was no politics. It was just a fax machine and a bunch of books sitting around the dining room table and telling my wife that calculus is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so from Florida Atlantic University, where you get your where you get your original degree, yeah. Then you go. Where'd you go next? Cornell for a year, and then I finished up the, my PhD at a place called the is Rand. It, is it hard to get cor into Cornell? It is when you have a bachelor's degree by correspondence. Yeah, like what? Okay, um, so let me rephrase my question. How did you get into Cornell when you had your bachelor's degree through correspondence? Perhaps an admissions officer was not paying adequate attention. <laughs> 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 I mean. When I, when I first, you know, I, I the, 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 this main professor that I had by correspondence, I'd never met him, but I was doing really well in these classes. And this guy's like, you're the best student I've ever had by correspondence. He said, you should go get your PhD. I'm like, wow, this thing, this thing's like, he said, where, where should I do it? And he writes back to me. This is all like letters. And he says, you should go to Harvard. I'm like, really? He says, yeah, I think you could do it. So I, I apply, I, you know, with full confidence, because this guy told me of course, that I could get into Harvard. Of course, he doesn't know. I, I, I apply to Harvard. I got rejected in a week. I mean, with complete prejudice. It turns out their core demo is not a 30-year-old French horn player, college dropout, studying by correspondence. That's not what Harvard's in the market they for. They weren't looking for out. you? Yeah. So I, you know, I applied. So, so how'd you get into Cornell? I, I don't know. I mean, I think they were cool. They were, they were like, this is an interesting guy. This is a French horn player. He built it by himself. Take a shot. And I did one year of the of this sort of core curriculum and the, you know, the and economics. And then I transferred to a place called the Rand Graduate School, which is part of the Rand Corporation mm -hmm. up in Santa Monica. And I worked at the think tank. I was doing theater level combat uh, modeling for the US Air Force behind, in a skiff mm -hmm. during the day. I was doing large scale math modeling. And then, it, you know, in the afternoons, I was actually taking my coursework and working on my PhD. So they hired you for that job, yeah. and then you got the schooling as like a benefit. A benefit. Well, the ben I came in as a graduate around? fellow, a graduate fellow to their PhD program, and the way that I paid for it was by working as an analyst for the Rand Corporation, doing this you know big simu battle simulation stuff mm -hmm. using a string of Unix machines and and you know two hundred fifty thousand lines of Fortran and all that stuff. And I was learning. I was learning like crazy. I was learning my math modeling. I was learning, and, and I you know I was doing military operations research analysis. Enjoying working for the DOD? It was great. It was great. I had a Pentagon pass while I was a graduate student. I was going back and forth. I was I had an action officer in the US Air Force, a lieutenant colonel. 
I was doing, you know, blue team, red team mm-hmm. simulation. It was very interesting. I learned a ton. I learned a ton about the military. What kind of wargaming were you doing? It was looking at future analysis of potential conflicts and then and then figuring out, you know, putting together forced deployment schedules and putting them into large-scale simulations of what could happen under these circumstances. I developed with a bunch of other guys a technique called exploratory analysis where instead of saying, I'm going to put in all these specific parameters into a model, including the weather over some country, and then say, here's how the battles are going to go, and here's how the war is going to turn out. We said, here's all the range of parameters that can happen, and so here's the range of outcomes. Mm. And in doing that, you can actually look at these highly complex situations. What I learned during that time is something that my father told me about. My father was a mathematician, and he always said, there's two kinds of problems in life. There's complicated problems and there's complex problems. It sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm not. Complicated problems are problems that are very hard to figure out, but with enough brains and computational horsepower, you can, and you can solve it with perfect accuracy over and over again, like designing a jet engine or putting together the internet or building a toaster. Complex problems are the most interesting problems in life. Those are things where you you totally know what winning means, but you can't actually simulate it. You can only live it. And so no matter how much computational horsepower, you can't predict if the Steelers are gonna win this weekend. You can't do it. You have to watch the game. That's why we love it. Love is a complex problem. War is a complex problem. That's why we actually don't know. And so the problem is that simulations that the DOD runs are a complicated simulation of a complex problem, and that's why they're always wrong. That's why they said, you know, at the beginning of Desert Storm, they said, we're going to have 60,000 American dead because they were actually parameterizing a complicated model using Vietnam-era data for a complex problem that turned out entirely differently. And so what we developed a technique for was to actually to deal with complex problems by looking at ranges of possible parameters and looking at the outcomes across spaces. It could be best case, worst case, most likely case. We could put we could put probabilities across an entire range of parameters, across an entire range of outcomes. And we got all these all these academic awards for these techniques that we're using, you know, running future scenarios in war. And you guys did this in the 90s. Yeah, it was 1996, seven, eight, when I was finishing my PhD, yeah. And apparently no one's wanted to use any of these models for the last 20-something <laughs> years of wars that we've had. There's a lot of the good stuff going on in the Pentagon still, for sure. And they've it actually gotten better at this exploratory analysis since we developed it at the Rand Corporation in the mid-'90s. But, yeah, it's still too many people want the one-and-done solution. This is what's actually going to happen. You can't do that in a complex and adaptive environment like war or love or your cat or a football game or, by the, by the way, anything that we actually care about. Yeah. But we keep trying to do it. I'll give you an example. People want love and they're lonely. And so we develop something like social media, which is a complicated solution to a complex problem. And all it does is makes us lonelier. And that's why. How does that work? Complicated solution to a complex problem of love. Exactly right. So I want to interact with other people. Right. I'm lonely. I want to interact with other people. I pick up my phone. I go to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat okay. or anything else. What all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I go to one of them. TikTok and, and or TikTok, and they TikTok. start. They start. Showing me other human beings. Yeah, it's an algorithm that actually that is a simulation of the human experience. It sets you up with people that to have it interact with virtually. It gives you nothing of what you actually want. There's a uh, there's a, a, a neuropeptide in the brain called oxytocin that you mm-hmm. actually need 
which only comes from eye contact and touch. The reason that we're doing the podcast right now in person is because we're looking at each other. That creates oxytocin. It creates a human bond, a human link. We have a much better conversation as a result of that. You don't get it when the complicated algorithm simulates the social experience, which is the complex issue that we're trying to solve. This is what we do again and again and again. The reason you know people are like, oh, is AI going to make us happy or unhappy? It's like, it's the wrong question. AI is a complicated solution to the complex problems of life. It, it's not going to help us mm -hmm. in the things that we really want. There's a reason I study love and happiness, because I'm in the complex problems business. Yeah, it's the, the, the war thing I've been talking about, I talk about this all the time. There's so many variables in war, yeah. uh, as you now know, because you actually tried to input all of them as yeah. many as you could possibly figure simulate out war. Into, you did war. I simulated yeah. war. It's like shows how much cooler you are than me. <laughs> but as soon as someone starts giving me like relatively solid prediction of what's going to happen in some wartime scenario, right. it immediately tells me that I need to watch out for this person yep. because they have no idea what they're talking they about. They don't know the difference between complicated and complex, yeah. to use the mathematical terminology. But basically, it's very simple to figure out. If somebody basically says, let me explain to you what being in love is all about. Don't trust them <laughs> because it's the same thing as trying to explain exactly what's going to happen in war. Mm -hmm. They don't know. Or somebody who basically says, look, if the, if the Patriots play the Steelers this weekend, here's exactly what's going to happen. So you're an idiot. Yeah. You're an idiot. That's actually not how it works. Everybody kind of knows that's not how it's going to work. But but again, like the world is the world has just given us all these complex, complicated toasters when all we want is complex cats because cats are warm and they give us companionship. It's like, I'm lonely, I want a cat. Here's a toaster. Uh, I already have a toaster. It's a better toaster. Oh, okay. My house is full of freaking toasters. I want some cats. Mm -hmm. That's or at least one cat, something. even one cat. I need some warmth. I need some, <laughs> anyway, you get my point. So, all right, so you get done with this job at, at the Air Force and you get your PhD yeah. in public policy from Rand Graduate School. What's yeah. after that? I took a job. I, I taught for 10 years as a, as a professor of, of public administration, public policy, economics. And I taught at Georgia State University in Atlanta for three years. Then I taught at Syracuse for seven years. Sy Syracuse is usually thought to be the best public policy, public administration school in the country. And so that was a real goal, was to get to, I mean, once again, I was just trying to be, you know, the French horn soloist, but just in another field, you know, chasing obscure glory again. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I went to Syracuse and, you know, did 10 years in academia and got my, you know, tenure promotion and all the stuff you do in academia and became a full professor of public policy, published a million articles that nobody's ever read. Did you like that? It was pretty good, I gotta say. I mean, I, it was intellectually incredibly rich because I learned a lot. I learned what I was, I learned my, I learned, I got my math down, I got my statistics down. I became a much better social scientist than I'd been in the past. And I got super interested in human behavior. You know, I talked about beauty, how people absorb beauty and why. I talked about philanthropy. I did tons of research on why people give why people are impelled to give. And, and the taproot of those two things is happiness. And so by the end of that 10 years, I was studying love and happiness. That's where, that's really where my heart was. And I, I published my first book on happiness in 2008. And then I quit. The, then you quit. <laughs> you quit that. I, I, I remember uh, my, my oldest daughter was going to college and it was like, she was all caught up in the scene, in the yeah. college scene of where are you getting your internship? What tech company are you right. going to work for? Was all these things going on. And you know she was stressed out about, I'm get, get a job there, what, uh, all this stuff. And you know what 
program are you getting enrolled in and all these things going on and it was stressing her out and you know I said hey this is just like a weird ecosystem of the world that you're right. in and no one outside that ecosystem cares anything about this completely right you know and when I, you know as I'm sitting here thinking of you as a French horn player yeah. trying to get to the top of the ecosystem of French horn players and like I can't even name another French horn player in the world <laughs> besides you you're the only French and I don't horn. even play anymore. yeah and you don't so, play yeah, anymore yeah, so, so yeah. this is I can't yeah. tell you anything about you know when you were in there getting these papers published and that's right. what the and the, look I, this is the same thing with ju, I'm in ju, I'm into jujitsu yeah. there's a whole ecosystem in jujitsu totally. there's people fighting to get to the top of the SEAL teams is the same way there's yeah. an ecosystem the SEAL teams totally. like people are trying to try to get to the top and I did this job and I did that job and I got right. this award so if you are feeling in life like you're competing and maybe you're not going to make it to the top of this thing that you're in you should actually take a step outside that ecosystem and look around because right. there's a decent chance that no one really cares about that ecosystem it's except true, for you. But this is evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. This is what I this is what I talk about all yeah, day so long. This is what I me. teach my students. The evolution is that we're hierarchical creatures and we're we, we understand ourselves on the basis of social comparison. Now, social comparison will ruin your life. If you let it run out of control and you're comparing yourself to billionaires on that you see on social media, woe be unto you. But you understand who you are by looking around at your own ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And you want to rise in the social hierarchy and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to tear somebody else down, but what does that impel you to do? It impels you to be excellent. It impels you to live with discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really good thing. I love hierarchies and I love competition because they lead to human excellence as long as we don't let them ruin our lives. And then going, but going back to what you were talking about earlier, if you are looking around in this ecosystem and I am training to, to play my French horn and I'm tr- doing the, everything I can and I actually feel like I'm not, A, I'm not gonna get to the top and B, I'm not really that gratified in playing the French horn anymore. Yeah, so I stopped. That's why I stopped. And that, that's a, a piece of advice for people. Totally. Look, we enjoy competition. I, I love competition, clearly. I love competition. I definitely, we, we and our egos, we look around, we're like, well, I think I can do better than that. I'm gonna try that too. But at a certain point, if you don't actually enjoy this endeavor that you're in, and you're looking around comparing yourself to a bunch of people that are fighting in this ecosystem to be the top of it, and you don't care about it, and you're still in there fighting, you're, you're to me, that seems like a really negative outcome in the long term. It does, it does. And that's the reason that self-awareness is so critically important. You know, that's why I talk to a lot of young men, I mean, who reach out to me. And because of the work that I do in, 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 in happiness and, you know, the, the work that I, the social science work that I do, they'll reach out and say, I'm feeling aimless, I'm feeling lost. And, you know, young men kind of need four things to, 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 to get happier. They need hard work, they need ambition, they need a sense of the divine and a spiritual path, and they need a great woman or partner. That's what they need. Those are the four things you need. Those are your ambitions. Those are the things to actually get. So, you know, it's like in work, bust your pick. Have a sense of greatness and a lust for glory. Good but also have a sense that there's a divine purpose, a spiritual path in your life, and then have a great partner who's gonna kick your butt when you're doing the wrong thing. This is the secret to success. This is the secret to get, I mean, there's more to it. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna reduce my entire career to these four pillars. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and everybody's different, and what the divine means is different to different people. And, there's, and I'm not just you know, talking about men, women too. But the truth of the matter is, it's not, it isn't rocket science. 
You need to actually be striving and struggling and sacrificing and making progress, but you need parameters around it so you don't ruin your life that way. That's why you need to love the divine. You need to love another person and have that other person love you so much that they're looking out for your well-being and they want to take care of you. Sounds like some people need to train jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one thing that makes me a little bit, well, let me just ask you a question about that. So you say people got to have ambition. I just want to make it clear that that doesn't mean that you feel like you need to be at the top of the hierarchy of some system or some ecosystem or some industry because you don't. No, that's not it. Ambition is about progress. That's what I see. We're wired for progress. Now, we think this is called the arrival fallacy in psychology. The arrival fallacy is once I get to my goal, then I'm going to just, it's going to be the best thing ever. But it's not true. Look, I deal a lot. I'm a nutrition and fitness nerd, and I deal with a lot of people who have all these goals. And they think when I hit my, my fitness goals or, or when I hit my weight goals, people are trying to lose a lot of weight, then it's going to be really great. The worst thing, the reason there's a 95% failure rate in dieting is because of the arrival fallacy and the fact that it's unbelievably frustrating and disappointing. So every day, your reward for the scale going down is the scale going down itself. And you're willing, it's much better than the cost of actually not eating these things that you find wonderful. Your goal, I mean, your, your reward for hitting your weight goal is you, congratulations, you never get to eat what you like ever again for the rest of your life. Which is why about 25% of people who are on a big diet wind up with an eating disorder because they go beyond their dieting goals because they still want to get rewards. The point is progress. Humans are wired for progress. Have a goal because you have to have an intention. You have to have intentionality. It's like a sailing trip. You got to know where you're going even though you're going to be blown off course because if you don't, you're going to go in circles like a cruise ship, which is depressing. Don't have your life be a cruise ship. Have your life be a navigation toward a particular point and then make progress every day. The ambition is for the progress. And when we start to understand our lives like this, we get much happier and we can actually have a, a life full of goals that make sense for us and yeah. we don't get so tied to them that we wind up wiping ourselves out. Yeah, and I guess what stemmed me to ask that question is so I have a consulting company, I work with all kinds of companies and I would get someone and I've had now dozens and scores of people ask me this question over the years, you know, I've got Fred and you know, Fred's a really good guy, he's smart, he does a good job, but he, you know, he gets here at nine, he leaves at 4.59, you know, five o'clock the bell uh -huh. rings and he's out of here. Right. I, I talked to him about, you know, moving up in the, you know, becoming a manager and he, he doesn't want to do it. He just right. likes where he's at. And, you know, what what should I do to, should I, the, people have had people say to me, like, should I fire him? Yeah. And, <laughs> you, you know, in a SEAL platoon, there's guys, it's a bell curve, just like anywhere else. And it's yeah. the same thing with any of these, yeah. any company, any business, any team in the world. There's some people at the top of the bell curve. They're hyper ambitious. They want to step up. They want to run things. They want to do things. And there's a bunch of people in the middle of the curve that they want to do a good job. Right. They're going to get it done. They're going to show up on time. They're going to do the required work. And then they're going to leave because they have a family and whatever. Yeah. They want to have a really to. good marriage. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's cool. And of course, you got some people at the bottom that really don't care. They want to be there. We have to address them. Right. But I just want to make it clear that ambition isn't tied to your job. It You can be a person that worked for 32 years as a plumber technician at a company, at a big plumbing company that grew a lot and you kept working as a plumber and meanwhile you raised five kids or you did all these other things in your life and you just didn't want to do something beyond that inside of being an awesome plumber. Yeah. Uh, so does that make sense? It's perfect because here's the deal. Remember your life is a startup. Your life is the enterprise. 
your life isn't just your work. Your life is your faith, it's your family, it's your friendships. For some people, it's their hobbies, it's their avocations. And, and so if you just pay attention, if you think of your life as an enterprise and you're only paying attention to the work part of the enterprise, that's like actually having a company and only paying attention to one division of the company. It's gonna be asymmetric, you're gonna starve the other parts, you're probably gonna be unsuccessful as a matter of fact. There are a lot of different ways for you to run that enterprise. You know, I do a lot of work on the trajectory of people's careers. And there's basically four career trajectories for, for different kinds of people. There is, you know, the, the linear path, which is what we sort of think at the Harvard Business School is our, our students have to have. That's where you're once, the only time you ever move from a job is because it's the next step up. It's the next best thing, more power, more money, more you know, prestige. That's why you change, but that's the only reason you change. And most likely every four to seven years, you're gonna go from one company to another. But that's only one path. That's for the, you know, the super hard chargers that actually wanna get ahead in that, you know, that with the SEALs, it's the same thing. Then there are people who are called experts. This is a, neck, a different career trajectory, which is a little bit better every year, not a lot a little bit better, but I want to be able to support my life with this. I wanna, I wanna work to live, not live to work. And so, you know, my dad had an expert career trajectory. He probably got a 2% wage raise every year. He, you know, he worked moderate hours. He didn't think he was gonna be the best university in the world. He wasn't trying to be, he wasn't chasing glory the same way that I've neurotically done it over the course of my life. And the result was just chugging along little by little by little by little. There's two others. There's the- Was your dad happy? Uh, he could have been a lot happier, but he had a lot of health problems. My sure. mother had a lot of health problems. There's a lot of exogenous circumstances mm -hmm. that made it a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, he should have been happier. I mean, he did a lot of the right things to be happier, right. but intervening circumstances. <laughs> the transitory career trajectory is one where it, your, your, your job entirely is to support a particular lifestyle. So if you're like a surfer dude, and that's really what you had to want to, then you're going to be a barista sometimes. You're going to drive a truck sometimes. You're going to you're going to work to support your lifestyle. You fall in love with somebody in Maine. You move to Maine. You know whatever it is. That's what you're. Everybody listening to us, young dudes, your mother's worried about that. That, you're going to have that. And then the last is the spiral career trajectory that a lot of people have and they don't know it. And that's where your life is a bunch of mini careers. You're no doubt a spiral, Jocko. I mean, you like did this and, and then you go on the, and, and every part builds on everything else. And who knows, you know, 10 years from now, you might actually walk away from high income because there's something you really want to do when you want to run your foundation or whatever it happens to be. But every your, your, your career is a series of mini careers of your design with a kind of a mad scientist plan behind it somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people really have and they need to be able to develop. And they can't do that unless they're unless they're free to do that. And that means they, that doesn't mean they need to be free, that the government needs to give them some sort of benefit to do it. It means they need to be mentally free to be able to understand that they are entrepreneurs and they're not constrained by somebody else's understanding of their own career. So spiral is good. Spiral is awesome. I'm a super spiral and a lot of my students are too. So I teach MBAs. My, I have 180 MBAs in my, in my happiness science class at, at HBS. And they are um, a lot of them. They're all. They all come in thinking that they're linears, but they're un a lot of them are uncomfortable with it, and they don't know why. And then I teach them about the spiral career path. And they're like, Ah, oh, I finally feel seen. First time in my life. You know, my parents are like. A lot of them have you know come from immigrant families where their parents sacrificed a lot to be in the United States, and and they feel like, you know, if I'm not doing something that's not traditionally unbelievably successful 
that I'm screwing up and what's wrong with me and I'm am I betraying my abilities and no 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 you just need to understand yourself in a different way you got a lot of things to do so you know for me I've taken my career down totally to the studs every 10 years and I'm on my fourth career right now and 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 we can do that I mean by the way God bless America that we're in a, we're in a system that allows us to do that too yes indeed so you, you this is when you're writing books right you co-authored a bunch of books the performing arts in a new era, gifts of the muse, the, gifts of time and money. Th- those things weren't big s- bestsellers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, portrait of the visual arts. So yeah. these, you know, this is this is what I what I was researching. Jocko's got my whole oeuvre. <laughs> Two thousand six book comes out. Uh, Who really cares? The surprising truth about compassionate conservatism. Yeah. Did George W. Bush coin that phrase? Compassionate conservative. He's yeah. I mean, he's he made it most famous. I don't know if he actually coined it, but he during his uh, his uh, first election campaign, he talked about being a compassionate conservative, and a lot of people were offended by that because they said we shouldn't have to put a qualifier around what it means to be a conservative. Mm. But the truth was that it was a good thing for him to do, and he's an unbelievably good man, compassionate man. I love W. I mean, it's just it's like nobody's perfect. But he's an incredibly good person. He did things that people don't even know about. I mean, his his initiative called PEPFAR, which was trying to to eradicate AIDS in Africa, was unlike anything that any American president has done before. I mean, it was and it was from a Republican entirely on the basis of what was right, what was right to set other people free, you know, in a faraway place. It just because and what he basically the whole premise was: these are our brothers and sisters. We have equal dignity, zero exceptions, and they're being held back by this thing, and we can we can actually do something about it. So that's what the whole idea of his compassionate conservatism was. And you know, I wrote a book in 2006, and it changed my career. How did it change your career? I was beavering away in academic obscurity, writing those books that you first listed. (laughs) (laughs) The performing arts in a new era. Yeah, I mean, I had 40, 50 readers. You know, it it was. And then I wrote this book, which was pretty boring and you know pretty academic too. It had a mathematical appendix to it, but it basically said all the best data on who gives to charity, like who's given to charity, who thinks they're giving to charity. How's that different? You know, it's like what do I think are the most you know generous people? They're the people who talk a good game about generosity. Who's actually giving? Is the whole point? These are people who are quietly giving, you know, quietly supporting people in need, doing it out of a sense of of you know, what it means to be a good person in the world is not always the people that you actually think and not the people who are actually yelling in the public square. And, you know, I, I, I wrote the book. I thought it would sell, you know, a few thousand copies. My publisher thought it would sell a few thousand copies. And um, George W. Bush read it when he was president and called me to the White House to talk about it. And suddenly I was in the papers. Um, what year was it? That was 2006 that all this happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just a professor at Syracuse and, and my life was changing. I was, you know, hearing from strangers and... You know, I was doing these talk radio shows and, and going on television for the first time and having to get my hair cut to figure out, you know, what is, you know, like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, I had to get coaching to be able to give an answer on broadcast television that's less than, yeah. you know, 40 minutes long. And, and <laughs> you have seven seconds. I know. I know. And it was just it was and my my 
my career never was the same after that. So then did you do another book deal for Gross National Happiness? That yeah. was your next book? That was my next book. It was about the social science of happiness, who's happy and who isn't. It was just an observational study about who are the happy people and who are the unhappy people and what are they ha- what's different about their lives. And that one was completely a complete flop. And so everybody thought since that, that last, that first book, you know, mm-hmm. it was like a big deal. So the next one's gonna be a bigger deal. It's a great topic. And and it was the seventh book about happiness that came out that year. Oof. Oh, it was brutal. You know, it sold hundreds of copies. <laughs> but I hope you got a good advance based on your on your 2006 book. Yeah, but you know, you know how it is with advances. You know, you get an advance and then you don't earn it out and you feel embarrassed. Uh, and you know, the point is- I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm sure that's got a sting. Yeah, yeah, it stung. And I actually, I, I published the same year a, a textbook on philanthropy and nonprofit management. And, and then, you know, I, th- I was thinking to myself, you know, I can do this and, you know, write another book every two, three years uh-huh. and for the rest of my career, but it was time to take it down to the studs again, so I quit. And so the next move was to the uh, American Enterprise Institute. Think Tank in Washington, D.C., dedicated to better public policy for politicians. It was a 1938 company formed during the Great Depression um, when economic growth was minus 4%, 25% unemployment. And the whole idea was we need actual scholars, actual intellectuals who are not saying that the secret to solving the Great Depression is socialism. Mm -hmm. The secret to the Great Depression is spreading capitalism all the way to the margins. The solution is setting poor people free, not shackling everybody. That was the the whole idea of the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, it had been around for years and years and years, and and I became their president. in two thousand, end of two thousand eight. So, what do you, what do you do, and what do they do? How do they how do they make change happen? So, it's a, a think tank is basically a university without students that does studies that are then delivered to policymakers so that they can write legislation and and create policy that's more aligned with good ideas and that will actually help people more. And you know, sometimes it's effective and sometimes it isn't. The surge in Iraq was actually a product of the American Enterprise Institute that idea with, with Jack Keane and, and Fred Kagan, um, who authored the surge in Iraq policy, which was, a, which was an inflecting policy. I mean, it was, it was a big risk, but it was you know, based on, on highest intellectual ideals from both military and civilian experts who said this is something that could, could actually work. Um, welfare reform um, in the late 1990s, where the whole idea how, is- How well did they do executing the surge from your perspective? Um, so you were right in the midst of that because if no, those, oh, no, you missed it. There, it was before I was there, and um, I would have liked to have you know taken credit for being the president of the place when it was actually doing the surge in Iraq. Mm-hmm. But it was you know like everything else, it's a limited success. You know, a great idea, but the execution is everything. Mm-hmm. Execution of the strategy is everything. I would turn that back on you. How do you think that the surge turned out? I think that the surge went well, and it definitely had a huge. It it, it shifted. It shifted the war to a situation where we were gonna have a positive impact. And, you know, I just, you know, there's been obviously a lot of talk going around right now about Israel, Gaza, the West Bank, the whole nine yards. And, you know, I've talked about the fact that we were fighting a counterinsurgency. Once we recognized we were fighting a counterinsurgency and we needed to fight it like a counterinsurgency, we needed more troops on the ground, that's when the surge happened. And actually, I was in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006 and they definitely utilized the success of the Battle of Ramadi to say, hey, look, what happens when we utilize this this strategy, right? Right. And they utilized that, and that's one of the things that was able to convince people that the surge would be a good idea. So brought in more troops, 
did what, you know, I thought this was a great phrase from General Petraeus who said, we can't do drive-by counterinsurgency, meaning you have to get out of your vehicles, you have to go into those towns, you have to go into those neighborhoods, you have to go meet with the local populace, you have to show them that you're gonna be there, you have to be willing to sacrifice, you have to show them that you're gonna stay, and if you do all those things, they're eventually gonna go, oh, these, this is this is a better way of life is ahead of us. Right. And these coalition forces are willing to make sacrifices, they're protecting us, and it definitely worked. It worked in the Battle of Ramadi. We saw a radical transformation t- take place there, but it also worked in Talafar. It worked in Al Qaim. It worked in Baghdad. It worked in Sadr City. So it worked. Right. Unfortunately, in 2010, 2011, we decided, oh, we we're, we're done and yeah. we'll leave now. And that was not a good move because there was still embers of right. extreme Islam there. And when we left, they rose up and we got ISIS. It's, it's persistence. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because the, what the, the surge was, was a combination really of three things, strength, um, uh, persistence, and brains. And that's what we need. But by the way, this is what we need in our lives. This is what we need. Yeah. You got to bring strength to bear. Get into the gym. Develop your body. Get your sleep. Eat right. Be strong. Persistence. Work your butt off. Be ambitious and brains. Learn, 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 and use what you learn. If you put those three things together, you become unstoppable. And what, when you when you scale that to something like strategy in the surge in Iraq, that's what it took. Because if you did, you only had two legs of that three-legged stool, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. If you just sent in a bunch of guys, sorry. If you'd only done the persistence where we have the same kind of pitiful force and we say we're gonna stay here for a really long time and you know try to Im- embed in the culture, it wouldn't be good enough. And if we actually didn't have a, an, a concept of what the coin, the counterinsurgency strategy was, it wouldn't have worked in the first place because we wouldn't have an intellectual superstructure of what we were trying to do. So this is the idea. All of us should have a surge in Iraq mentality for our lives. Everybody for, in particular when we're in crisis. When the people are listening to us, if you're not in crisis now, you will be. And something's gonna happen. Model your strategy for getting out of the crisis and getting your life on track on the counterinsurgency strategy. Brains, learning, using ideas, persistence, hard work, commitment, and ambition, and force. And that force actually comes from being strong and doing what it keeps to, it takes to be strong. And some of that is just you know getting into the gym and eating right. Some of that's stopping drinking and stopping the stupid nonsense in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the so I had a conversation with one of my bosses wherein we just arrived in Ramadi in 2006 and we started doing counterinsurgency operations, right. which was not what SEAL teams had been doing for the previous three years in Iraq. And a few weeks goes by and I get a call from one of my bosses and he says, you know, you guys are doing these these missions. Those aren't typical SEAL missions. We And we, we haven't seen any change in enemy attacks. So you need to go back to what we've been doing. Right. And luckily, I had just read from cover to cover the FM3 Tech 24, which had been released as a draft, which was the counterinsurgency <laughs> manual. And I, I said, hey, sir, with all due respect, the average counterinsurgency takes seven years. Right. It's been three weeks. Can I get some more time to yeah. see some impact here? <laughs> and it was like, yeah. But then again, if you look at that, the, the surge that started in 2008 and all of a sudden in 2010, we're leaving. 
Like uh-huh. we didn't give it the time it to to we didn't well, the persistence part. We right. failed on the persistence part, and then we pulled everyone out. Now we don't have the strength. We don't have the persistence, and and the thing falls apart. And it's it's terrible too, because unfortunately we in America, our strategic planning is going to be no more than four years. It's going to be no more than the next election cycle. Right. And then it's like, hey, we we said we're going to get out of that war, whatever it was. We said we're going to bring all the troops home. And listen, there's no one that's more pro bringing troops home and not let's not be in war than me. I don't want to be in war. Right. And I want all the troops to be back here in America. That's what that's what I want. But I also realize that you've got to have peace and stability in the world. And if you're going to make these moves, you've got to be willing to stick through and and continue until you actually achieve your goals. Yeah. There's a re- the reason that we have people in, around the world, which is because the world's unbelievably dangerous and America's a great country. Okay, so there's two ways to not have people all over the place and not doing things. Either we decide we're not a great country or suddenly the world becomes like, you know, rainbows and, and, and unicorns and dolphins, you know, flying through the air. Wouldn't that be great? And whale songs. Well, guess what? You know, that's a it's a tough choice, isn't it? I'll take what we've got and I'll get and, and I'll take I'll take stronger. And, you know, it's not it, it, I, I didn't do it. You did it. But, you know, I have a son in the Marine Corps and, and I've, I listen to my son, too. And he believes these things. He believes that we have an opportunity, we have a privilege of actually standing up for our, our, our values. Why? Because people have dignity around the world and people live under circumstances that are not as fortunate as what we have. And we're not gonna be everybody's policemen, we're not gonna solve every problem, but man, there is a lot that we can do. And there's a lot of strength that we can bring and a lot of goodness that we can bring on the basis of this strength. Yeah, no doubt about it. And so that's what you're doing while you're at the American Enterprise Institute. Yep. You're, you're helping move policy forward. What do you present it to politicians? This is what we came up with? Yeah, a whole lot of congressional testimony, a whole lot of publication of books, uh, op-eds in the major papers, You know, getting it in front of the public eye, um, getting information just in front of, of politicians as they're thinking through what they're trying to do. Um, getting it in front of business leaders, other academics, in front of journalists. These are the policy ideas that are going to be helpful, um, that are going to make the world better, you know, on the basis of the free enterprise system of American strength, of, you know, health and education policies that are good for ordinary Americans, of bringing opportunity to the periphery of society, trying to wipe out poverty on the basis of opportunity. And so that people can lift themselves up and what a wonderful world that would be. And that's the, the basic ideology behind these, these highly technical ideas that we would bring. And as you're, as you're kind of moving towards the end of that, um, which is mostly your, your fundraising, by the way, <laughs> I mean, it was a, it's a nonprofit organization. I had to raise $50 million a year. Mm-hmm. I was out of pure philanthropy. We took no government money from any government, any place in the world, not a dime. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we shouldn't force any taxpayers to, to, to pay for what we think is right. It's our opinions. That's the democratic thing to do. That's sadly unusual, mm-hmm. that ideology, but we really believe in that sort of freedom. And so our donors were really stepping up. And we we're, you know, this, this $50 million a year, we were putting it toward, so I was supporting 310 people doing this research. Yeah, it's great. You released a film. Yeah, which is called the pursuit. Yeah, which I watched this film, um, and and fundamentally, it's like socialism versus capitalism. That's kind of the fundamental underlying message of the film. You 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 go to different places in the world, but you you look at India, pre you know post British rule all the way up through 1991, and all the way up through 1991, it's very socialist. 
there's no mobility. It's sort of, and I remember these days, it's sort of the poster child of, you know, poverty and slums and the caste systems in place. Like it's a not a not a nice place to be in India. And then in 1991, they they kind of changed the way they were doing things. And, and start to liberalize. They started start to liberalize. Start to liberalize our economy. Um, and really had a, a huge impact. Absolutely. And no, it's not perfect. And there's still tons of poverty. But you started to see the emergence of a middle class and an entrepreneurial class creating jobs and opportunity and growth in India. India. And so now people in the United States who've never been there, they think, oh, it's really, it's just all slums. It's all poverty. You go there. It's the most exciting place. India is cooking, man. I mean, it's uh, it's completely chaotic. It's hilariously chaotic, but it's a wonderful, spiritual, fun, interesting, hardworking place. Everybody's got to go to India. It's one of the my favorite places to go. I go every single year. It's interesting. We have a lot of because it's English speaking. Yeah. English yeah. is the the what the official language. Yeah, it's one of the two official languages of India. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners from India. India's uh, great. I love India, and I go. You know, I, I I have spiritual teachers in India, and I meet with entrepreneurs in India. It's great. And and by the way, the sense of humor and the food and the sports, it's all good. It's all good. I wrote down a quote from the movie. Set people free. Let people decide what they are going to do with their talent and time and treasure. They will spontaneously organize in a way that creates the most wealth. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't mean every single person is making every single good decision. But when you aggregate up to a, to a, to a, a society of people who have freedom of movement and opportunity and a competition of ideas, good things happen. And it's not even a theory anymore. I mean, we know this because if you look at the world, you know, what's happened over the world where 80% of starvation level poverty has been wiped out in my lifetime? since the early 1970s because of the liberalization of economies and ideas and setting people free, setting women free, setting everybody free to, to, to you know live their dreams and build their lives entrepreneurially. It's, it's extraordinary. The world's completely different than it used to be. And the reason is because of freedom. You also uh, spent some time in that movie up in the Scandinavian re- region. Yeah. And you talk about the Scandinavian dream yeah. of of, well, you know, I think we should, everywhere should be like Scandinavia, which has these high happiness quotients and uh, really great social welfare programs. What did you uncover there? Well, I went to Denmark and, you know, I, I, Denmark wasn't chosen, you know, at random. I didn't throw a dart at a, at a map. Um, my grandparents came from Denmark and, and, uh, but and Denmark always comes out in these United Nations comparisons and these big world comparisons of happiness as the happiest country. But those comparisons are all bogus because the way that they set it up, it's like saying, who's got the best music? Well, I don't know. I'm going to go to 100 countries and ask 1,000 people in each country how much they like their local music. And then I'm going to say who's got the best music on the basis of that. It's all nonsense. You don't <laughs> compare countries this way. I mean, they don't even answer the happiness questions the same way in these countries. And so Denmark, for example, when you ask them about how happy happy they are, they, they answer that with respect to this concept of contentment, how contented they are. Now, that probably gives you, Jocko Willink, the heebie-jeebies, because it's like, contentment, kill me. Yeah. I don't want contentment. I want an adventure, baby. I want, I want an act. And that's the reason that the Willinks came, my guess is they weren't landed gentry, you know? <laughs> they came to America as total riffraff, right? And started a farm or something or worked in a factory. Now look at you. Yeah. That's the story. That's the story of America. And that's the reason that people sort into different places and do different things. So God bless the Danes, but I'm glad I'm not one. Mm-hmm. Because contentment makes my skin crawl. I don't want it. 
and they do good for them. That's the whole point. So I mean, I sort of debunk that, but I do ask them, you know, what's the deal? And I learned a lot in you know that part. You know, they have a system that's 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 very market oriented. It's much easier to dismiss a public servant in Denmark than it is in California. I mean, you actually have a, a tax system that's more egalitarian. It's very high marginal taxes, but it's quite egalitarian. You know, we have approximately 50% of the American population that has no federal tax liability in the United States. And you find that the, you know, the top one, five, and 10% pay the vast majority of the taxes in the United States. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, it's just a fact. It's mm -hmm. a highly progressive tax system, more so in the United States than most of Europe in that way, as measured in that way. And then you ask them, you know, what it's all about. Do you wanna live here or not? And they all say, yeah, it's good, it's good. You know, they have a word called hygge in Danish, H-Y-G-G-E, which is hard to translate. It's like the, the cozy conviviality and the comfort of friends on a comfortable couch or something like that. It's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. But they want it and they want it. They have a highly homogeneous population of people who have are culturally very similar. There's only 5 million of them. There's 25 million pigs and 5 million Danes. So it's like, it's a small country. And, they're, and they're, they're quite the same, and they have this particular culture, and the ones who wanted adventure, they came to America and were my grandparents. <laughs> and they, they made the Willinks and the Brookses, et cetera, et cetera. And so I found that, that there's a, they have a good answer for them, is the way that this turns out, but it's not a good answer for us. We're with a highly variegated population, 330 million people living in chaos and all wanting different stuff and mostly immigrant stock. That's a beautiful thing, but it's a different thing to be sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it comes through in the movie. Uh, another quote, or another area you went to is uh, Inez in Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. You know, these, these are coal miners and just seeing what that what they're thinking yeah totally yeah. different you got a quote in there from fdr welfare is a subtle destroyer of the human spirit yeah that's crazy from, that's from fdr totally totally no no because it you know the whole idea that you got to earn your success if you're gonna have dignity in life you know you find that it's not just welfare it's also winning the lottery or getting a huge inheritance from grandpa is a destroyer of the spirit you know, it's not just that we're dumping on people who are getting a check from the state. No, it's it's not earning your way. It's, it's terrible for people. It's terrible for happiness. It's terrible for motivation. It's terrible for earning your success and feeling like you're a person of dignity and worth is what it comes down to. So we need a system where people can earn the success. You know, so they can get an education. They can make progress every day. And and this is not just your opinion. This is I'm a social scientist. You know, <laughs> you know, and I come from a. By the way, I come from a very politically progressive family. So these these are not the ideas. These are not mother's milk ideas. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, my parents thought I was dropped on the my head a lot because I like capitalism. <laughs> I was a little surprised when you get to the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I um, love the Dalai Lama. Four secrets for a happy life: enlightenment, spirituality, worldly satisfaction. And wealth. Yeah, that's that's. These are the four six, <laughs> the secrets to happiness from Tibetan Buddhism, which is you know most people don't understand. But it's not just wealth, wealth, yeah, wealth yeah. as in money. It's the whole idea of the accumulation of the resources that are a marker of the success and value you're creating with your life is what it comes down to. Which is the depth of your relationships, the 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 relationship you have with God. It's all part of the wealth. It's the stock of love and happiness in your life is really the wealth that you'll accumulate. If you're trying to, you're trying to just count this in money, you're making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the three say. things they point out is build something. Yeah. 
earn a living, yeah. serve other people. Yeah. Those were the things that will give you wealth. Build something, build something with your life, earn your success, earn a living, meaning that you are standing on your own two feet as a human being and then, and then serve other people. I mean, it's sort of makes intuitive sense, but we sure are doing a good job forgetting it. Mm. Look, the Dalai Lama, it's like everybody thinks the Dalai Lama is some sort of, you know, robed Marxist or something. No, he's, he's somebody who's taught me so much about, I love him and I've worked with him for the last 11 years. It's such a beautiful experience for me to learn. I've, you know, I've learned meditation technique with, the, with his monks at, the, at the, his monastery in Dharamsala in the Himalayan foothills where I visit him every year. And so he's taught me a great deal about what it means for me to be a Christian man and for me to have better technique in my meditation practice. But he's also taught me a lot about, you know, basic common sense and ethics. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree that that's what people envision the Dalai Lama as, but the Dalai Lama, uh, Dalai Lama another quote you have from in, in the movie is, individuals change the world. Yeah. And I was like, hold on. I know, man. This is what we've been talking about. I know. And we got the Dalai Lama saying that. He says that, it's it from his lips. Yeah, for sure. You know, this is a, the, the fourth law of combat leadership that I teach and learned and now teach is decentralized command. And it's so obvious on the battlefield that if one person tries to control everything, everything is going to be lost. And the minute you empower people to step up, make decisions, make things happen, you're going to win. Yeah. And this just happens in business and it, it obviously it's from a, from a governmental perspective as well. The more control that's imposed on people, the worse off they're going to be. Yeah, this is a, believe it or not, this is a big Catholic idea. It's called subsidiarity. It's a fancy word for a very, a very sensible idea. Subsidiarities always push power down to its lowest possible level. Now, sometimes it's not at the level of the individual. I mean, sometimes you gotta say, everybody go do this. But if it's a, a decision that can be made at the state, don't make it at the federal level. If it can be made at the city, don't make it at the state level. If it can be made by a community, don't make it at the city level. If it can be made by a family, leave the community out of it. It can be made by the individual, then they have to work together in the family to get it done. And if you're in a company of Marines, if you're in your platoon level, sometimes has to do something with platoon command. But sometimes you're in a situation where power needs to be pushed down to the individual where it actually becomes most effective. And that's how we should live our lives, quite frankly. That's how we should be thinking about our society. And that's when things work best is when we're empowered. That's subsidiary, that ancient Catholic, that medieval Catholic philosophical notion. Sure sounds good to me today. <laughs> um, you can watch that movie on YouTube, by the way. Once again, it's called The Pursuit. And it's free on YouTube. Next book, 2019, Love Your Enemies. Interesting. Yeah. I really like this idea. Thank Talk you. Talk to me about what's the premise behind Love Your Enemies. Well, Love Your Enemies is the most transgressive idea in the history of civilization. And so this comes as, you know, anybody who's listening who's either aware of or practicing the Christian faith, this comes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the, the 44th verse, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he's given all these crazy ideas. I mean, it's like people are going, their minds are being blown by this rabbi. And he says, today, you know, you have heard that, that you should love your friends and hate your enemies. But today I give you a new teaching. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And people start just walking off, right? <laughs> like, no way, man. That is the most transgressive teaching ever. Why? Because it's the most pragmatic teaching 
that is the source of true power. Jesus didn't say, like your enemies. That's sentimentality. Look, you like somebody because you like somebody. I like, I like you, Jocko, because you're awesome, right? But even if I didn't, the job is for me to love you. And even if we're at war and you're on the other side, I'm still called to love you. What does that mean? That's, I mean, it's like blowing my mind. It's just blowing my mind. But the whole point is that's total power because you can only redeem your enemy when you love your enemy. And, you're, and to love is to, to will the good of the other, to make a commitment to do so, notwithstanding your feelings. You want to discipline your feelings? You want to discipline the will? Love people, notwithstanding your feelings. That's huge. And that's what Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching the most muscular kind of philosophy ever in that. And so the question is, are we going to do it or not? You want power? Love your enemies. It doesn't mean you got to have them over for dinner. It doesn't mean you have to give them your money. What it means is you have to you will their good as them and act as such, even if they don't like it. Which is, by the way, how you raise teenagers. You and I have raised teenagers. And, you know, they're, they're acting like your enemies sometimes. And you're loving them by, do, by willing their good, even when they don't want it. One of my friends is a devout Catholic, and one of the biggest challenges he has that he states is like, it was really hard for me, was praying for Osama bin Laden. Yeah, totally, totally. And again, you know, you know you're military. Um, my son is a, you know, he's a combat Marine. And we've talked about this. He's a Catholic. He's a church-going Catholic. All my kids go to Mass, and they're all church-going Catholics. And I said, Carlos, what does it mean? What does it mean for you to love your enemies? And you know, he says, well, in the Marines, you were not taught to, we're sometimes taught to kill our enemies. I say, are those two ideas incompatible? Can you will their good? And, I, and, and the truth is, I don't know how to sort out that. That's, a, that's a, a Gordian knot. That's a really, really tough one. But I can tell you in my ordinary life, I have to do hard things all the time that people aren't gonna life, like, but I will not hate my enemies. I, I refuse to hate my enemies. I will will their good, notwithstanding the fact that I have to do things that are that they don't think are necessarily in their interest. Like I've been a boss, I've had to fire people. I've had to say goodbye to people who wanted their jobs. But if they're not a fit for the company, I'm not willing their good by doing this. I'm willing their convenience, you know? <laughs> I'm willing the easiest possible path for them. And, and I have to tell you because you've, holy mackerel, I can't even imagine the decisions you've had to make that went against the will of a lot of people, but it was for the good. Is that fair? That is fair. Hmm. That is fair. Um, you're at this point. This is 2019. This book comes out now. You're also teaching it. This is when you start teaching it at Harvard. This is, is right? right before I left the American Enterprise Institute, and I had I had said I had announced a year and a half in advance that I was going to retire as CEO. Um, you got when you're running something when you're the boss, um, you have two choices about leaving. You can leave before you're ready or you can leave on somebody else's terms. There's only two choices. <laughs> and uh, I don't like either, so I'm gonna leave before I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Because I sure as heck don't wanna leave on somebody else's terms. <laughs> if you hang around long enough, you're gonna leave on somebody else's terms. <laughs> so I resigned when I was 55. And this was taking it down to the studs again, down basically. To the studs. Taking your career down to the studs. Down to the studs. Uh -huh. We're gonna start again. Yep, yep. What was your, what was your plan? My plan was I was, I mean, I thought, I prayed about it a lot um, because because this is a, this is a philosophical concept called discernment. Whenever you have a, a lot of people listening to us right now, they've got a, do I ask that girl to marry me? Um, do I go back to school? Um, do I change jobs? 
they're, they're discerning something. Discernment takes work. Don't wait for inspiration to flash, because it won't. You'll just hang around, and, and then you'll be forced to make a decision It might not be the right one. Do the work. And to do the work, you start basically making lists of pros and cons, and you have to be thinking about something specifically, usually 15 minutes a day. I recommend, I'll put people on a discernment program. Think about the decision you're making, but really think deeply about it for 15 minutes a day for 30 days, and you will have incredible enlightenment about this that you never had before because you'll have you won't have the decision necessarily but you'll be able you'll have structured the decision in your mind that's also a spiritual concept in 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 um in buddhism it's called in theravada buddhism it's called panna which is a word from pali that means you know the enlightenment um, where you go through the process of trying to make a decision by thinking or praying about it in the the, the ancient greeks called it sunesis uh, the discernment of spirits in the Ignatian Catholic tradition is a, a structured way to make these decisions. And I did, you know, for six months, I spent time on my knees every day, man, every day, every in, the, in front of the Blessed Sacrament. You know, I would pray in front of the presence of the Lord. Lord, and here's what I prayed. What do you want? You know, guide my path. Just guide my path. And I felt that the will was... Um, it, the will was that I was supposed to go someplace to say things that people didn't expect and where I wasn't necessarily invited. So <laughs> I left my job at the think tank, which is very comfortable and very secure. And I went, I went back to academia, but in a different role as a professor of practice where the world is the classroom in a public intellectual role. Um, I went to Harvard University between the Harvard Kennedy School, which is the government school and the business school, 50-50. And, uh, and I became a columnist at the Atlantic talking about the science of happiness and how we can use it, how we can spread the ideas, how we can all be happiness teachers and build a, a life based on love and happiness, spreading the ideas of love and happiness. Back to the studs. Writing for The Atlantic, you got, a, there's a ton of articles. By the way, they're all available. You can just Google them and find them. But measuring your happiness so you can improve it. How to cope with election agony. Reading too much political news is bad for your well-being. Why it's so lonely at the top. Success addicts choose being special over being happy. Echo's probably going to give me a, a sideways eye on that one. Uh, <laughs> addiction a, <laughs> is as addiction does, Jocko. <laughs> a college degree is no guarantee of a good life. Um, the, so that's what you're writing. It's about. every week, every week, every Thursday morning in the Atlantic um, is 1,300 words on the science of happiness, 52 times a year. <clears throat> I was intervening with one of my friends who was having a drinking problem uh-huh and i common went, common problem went to his house and this was at the you know in the midst of an, an intervention that had been ongoing for a long time right and you know he'd come clean for a little while and now he's been missing for a couple of days or whatever you know what's going on go to his point. house yeah. i'm banging on his door banging on his door banging on his door he answers the door of course he's drunk you know and um, <laughs> I'm saying, hey, listen, you, you got to stop. Like, you're, you're addicted. You're addicted. Like, this is right. controlling you. And he looks at me and says, well, yeah, you're addicted to power. <laughs> you're an addict. Too. Yeah, I was an addict, too. Yeah. So that's what he I got mean, it's me on fair. that one. It's fair. It's you know, fair. And, and, you know, I, we, we can talk about, the, talk about the neurophysiology of success addiction, which looks an awful lot like the neurophysiology of methamphetamine addiction. Mm -hmm. It does. It's where you get your rewards. Mm. The dopamine patterns in your brain are habituated to what gives you the anticipation of great reward. 
and and you know the the the, the dudes listening to us who drink too much and then quit are going to be in danger of becoming addicted to every single other thing in their lives, including the gym, including, you know, business success. And and the truth is you have to look out for that. You have to look at, and it's not addictive personalities. It's just brain chemistry is the way it works mm-hmm. out for sure. Absolutely. And so this is what you're writing about in all these different articles. You're yeah, the science of happiness. So it's about 30% neuroscience, which is a lot of what I teach these days about 50% social psychology and behavioral economics. And the rest is how you can apply these ideas to your life. So every week, um, I talk about, you know, what's the, what's the question, what's the science, and, and not for scientists. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I've read 100,000 academic journal articles, so the readers don't have to, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is like, I'm a, I'm a translator at this point. You know, I'm reading all the, you know, the deep science. This is how I'm trained. <clears throat> and then I say, here's what it means. Here's actually, you turn it into three lessons for your life. And I'm usually eight to nine weeks out in my column, and so I'm trying these things. I'm a complete happiness guinea pig. I'm trying, so my wife's like, what are you doing? It's like, ah, it's a column, you know? It's like, <laughs> why are you trying to learn to walk on your hands? Or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's because I'm trying something out for my column. Now, it sounds like you had another hit with the book uh, From Strength to Strength. That was 2022. And that was a book that I was working on when I, when I retired. And I well, didn't retire. When I, when I changed careers and I came back again to dedicate my, my, my work to happiness, to the science of happiness. That was the first big science book on happiness that I wrote after I came back to Harvard. And I guess it spawns from the title of one of the articles that you wrote, which was, your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> which is depressing. It's sort of depressing, except that it's, it, it has a happy ending to it. And here the problem is that getting into the basic neuroscience of, of how our careers work, we get, we're good at what we do in our 20s and 30s on the basis of something called fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence gives you unusual focus. It gives you creative energy, uh, has a ton of working memory behind it, and it allows you innovative capacity to do new things and to solve problems yourself, like a ninja, like a cowboy. And people who are super motivated and really disciplined hard workers, they're listening to your podcast for a reason. That's you dudes. In your 20s, you're getting better and better, and it's awesome. And the brain power behind that is called fluid intelligence. This was identified by a social psychologist in Britain named, Ray, named Raymond Cattell um, in the 1960s. And the problem is that it peaks in your late 30s. That fluid intelligence, your working memory, your focus, your innovative capacity, your ability to solve problems by yourself in new ways, that peaks in your late 30s. That's the reason that the average startup, tech startup with a $1 billion valuation, that the, the startup founder is 31. That's the, which is, you know, it's like, it's, it's, but you look at, at the kinds of professions that require more standing knowledge. So, you know, medicine or, or law, you find that, you know, the hottest litigators are in their late thirties. The most innovative surgeons are in their late thirties. The best financial professionals who are doing things in new ways are in their late thirties. Musicians, authors, electricians, air traffic controllers, they're, they're, they're peak focus when they're in their late thirties. And then it starts to decline. And, and that's why people start to burn out typically in their mid-40s. They're like, I don't know. I, you know, I used to love being a dentist, but now I guess I'm going to start taking Fridays off. I don't know why. The reason is the progress principle, once again. They, they, nobody else thinks they're incompetent. They're still really good at what they do, but they're not making progress anymore. And they don't know that it's because their fluid intelligence has started to decline. So they can't actually continue to get better the way they did before. That's why people go into decline. You see case after case after case. I talk about it in the research, like um, um, Charles Darwin, 
who, you know, he did his peak most innovative work in his 20s and 30s when he developed the theory of natural selection, aka evolution. And then, you know, after he was about 50, he never made any more advances. You know, his his field passed him by. He wrote tons of books, but it wasn't innovative. And he he went to his grave thinking that he was a charlatan and a fake because he hadn't done any new work for decades. He hadn't done any new theoretical work. It was all coming out of, you know, younger scientists. The reason was because he was trying to stay on his fluid intelligence curve, and his tel- that curve was in the cellar, man. You know, I was I was writing stuff in Ouch. my in my in my in my early thirties. I was writing research that was so mathematically sophisticated I can't read it today. I was doing work on early artificial intelligence algorithms called genetic algorithms, which are learning algorithms, and I was applying, you know, war fighting uh, simulations. Into, into this learning algorithm to see what would work best and let these warfighting scenarios learn to get better. So I was using artificial intelligence, a, a, a rudimentary form, and I was writing papers that was modeling you know, economic uh, scenarios and, and, and getting these highfalutin publications that nobody read, of course, because it's too technical and, and really boring. Um, and I can't read it now because that was my fluid intelligence curve. And that's what a lot of people get stuck on and they feel disappointed by. And then they wind up the rest of their lives going, yeah, and just and, and, and going for that next big hit. You see entrepreneurs who have a huge hit in their 30s and in their 50s, they're trying to start a new thing and, and struggling and feeling frustrated and feeling kind of burned out. And that's because they're on the wrong curve. The good news the happy news comes after that, which is there's a second intelligence curve that's different, that's increasing in your 30s and 40s and 50s, and it's highest in your 60s and 70s. And that's called crystallized intelligence. That's based on your wisdom and pattern recognition and your ability to put a whole bunch of different ideas together. That's why you're a much better teacher when you're 50 than you were when you're 30, and even better when you're 70. The best teaching evaluations at my university at Harvard go to professors who are over 70. And it's not because the students are merciful, God knows. It's because they're better, prof- you know, like young guys will come out of, men and women will come out of graduate school and they'll ask, you know, what's the secret to great teaching evaluations? I'm like, get old. <laughs> because you get on your crystallized intelligence curve and that your pattern recognition is high, your ability to use metaphor is really good. You're just a much better teacher. You're a better coach. You're a better mentor. You're a better team leader. You don't want a team leader who's 25. The team leaders who are 25 are actually dangerous because they think like individuals. You want people who are 45 and 55 who, are, who really appreciate the, the unique capabilities of 25-year-olds and put them together in their particular groupings. Uh, is this making sense to you? No. Given, I mean, how old are you, Jocko? I'm 52. You're 52. Yeah. You're a young guy. Yeah. But you're on your fluid, your crystallized intelligence curve. Yeah, well, I was thinking about my life, and so I was like, oh, well, I didn't really re re uh, Build, rip myself down to the studs every 10 years because I was in the Navy for 20 years. Then I was like, oh no, I was enlisted my first right. eight years, went to college, and then was an officer my last 12 years. Mm-hmm. And then and then I got out, and then I started doing other things. And definitely, You're a total spiral. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you told me that, because you you know I knew this about your career, you've told me this before, that you were enlisted, and then you did officer training, went to college, and then did command, which is a completely different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm related, same company, the same organization, and then you come out and you're an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur in a different way in the first part of your entrepreneurial life than the second part of your entrepreneurial life. 
Now you're, I mean, you have, like you even have a podcast network. Why? Because you're helping other people to succeed. You're finding other authors and you're, the imprint that you're doing because you're helping other, you're, you're recognizing talent and helping it to succeed because you're on your crystallized intelligence curve. Your spiral with crystallized intelligence. My fluid intelligence is gone. I have no new ideas. So I'm like, yo, can we get some young guys in here to make some stuff happen? <laughs> but that's, you know, it's like, it's no joke. It's, it's the, the secret to success and happiness. And so you find the people throughout history who've been happiest, they're the ones who actually became the, 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 the graybeards. They're the ones who actually, and became very comfortable with the idea of bringing up the next generation of talent and getting their satisfaction from that. They became the great instructors, the talent recognizers. They go from, you know, from startup entrepreneurs to venture capitalists. Yeah. And we can all do that yeah. in our own way. Yeah. We, the key thing is what's your crystallized intelligence curve? And then if you're in your 20s and 30s, what do you think it's gonna be and what are you doing to make it easier to step onto it when the time comes? That's what that book was about. Yeah. Um, Next up came the most current book that you wrote, which I have a copy of here today. Build the life you want. The art and science of getting happier. What was this just an extension of the articles initially? No, what it was, it was the brainchild of my co-author on this. This is the first book I've written with another person in 20 years, as a matter of fact, which is pursuant to a very interesting phone call I got um, from Oprah Winfrey. It was like the this co-author. The co-author. Oprah Winfrey calls. This is Oprah Winfrey. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman. It's <laughs> <laughs> right? so Oprah Winfrey. And um, she's a reader of my column. And she had read From Strength to Strength, the book that we were just talking about. Uh, the first day it came out, I went on her podcast. And her idea was collaborating on something that could get the science of happiness to a, a different audience than I'd ever been able to touch before mm-hmm. into a much bigger audience. Because, you know, Oprah Winfrey has, I mean, she's one of the most respected and iconic figures in American culture, world culture, as a matter of fact, and justly so. She's amazing, um, energetic, idealistic, helpful, full of love, and wants to bring these happiness ideas because the science of happiness she felt had really helped her a lot during the coronavirus epidemic as she'd been reading my column. And so we spent, you know, I, we, we got together at her place in California and cooked up the structure of the book and we went away and, and wrote it and passed it back and forth and it came out September of 2023. Build a life you want. Um, it's about emotional self-management. It's about treating your emotions and understanding your brain as something under your management as opposed to managing you. That's the central idea. Yeah, I mean, you, you kick it off here, you got a, a, a thing, you're talking about Viktor Frankl. We covered Viktor Frankl's... Um, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, we covered that book on like one of the earlier podcasts that we yeah. did, because obviously it's such a important, powerful book. you saying here, Frankl's message was not that life will automatically be good, however, which it obviously isn't. Nor was it that we can somehow escape pain with some special mind trick. He acknowledges that every life has suffering, some a lot more than others. Further, as a psychiatrist, he knew that we react to suffering with negative emotion, which is natural. But a bad life is not our fate because we have a choice as to how we respond to our emotions. In Frankl's words, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. In other words, you can't choose your feelings, but you can choose your reaction to your feelings. You could have written that. Uh, you could have written that. Because yep. that's, you know, I listen to you, and uh, that's what you're talking about. Yep. You can you got two choices, man. You can be managed by your feelings, or you can manage your feelings. Choose wisely. Choose appropriately. Choose 
in a way that will be empowering to you. And too many people are going through life hoping for a better day, going through life hoping that, that good feelings will find them. And so, okay, so Viktor Frankl wrote that, and I said, let's do, and Oprah and I said, let's, let's, let's actually explain the science on how to do that. Because the truth is, to do that, you need to do three things. You need to understand the science, you need to change your habits, and you need to help others. In helping others, you imprint these ideas in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. You experience the ideas where you can retain them in memory. That's why teaching is so critically important. The reason I teach is because this is you know not research, it's me-search. The reason is because I want to be a happier person with more love in my life, and so I teach people how to do it. And so that's what we do. We talk about how does this work? What is the science of what's called metacognition? Mm -hmm of understanding and experiencing your emotions as simple information. There's no bad feelings. There's no such thing as bad feelings. There's just information coming from the limbic system of your brain, which is taking the outside stimuli that's being sensed by the, your brain stem, sending it to the limbic system, a console of emotion-producing brain tissue, and that information sending it to the prefrontal cortex where you decide what it means and decide what you're gonna do. That's how it works. And once you understand that mechanism and, and adopt a bunch of techniques for doing so, it's like your brain's under new management. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a new sheriff in town, man, and it's the prefrontal cortex, the C-suite of your brain. And that is a different life experience. Changed my life completely. Yeah, you, do, you have a good, uh, the way you explained it here in the book, you say feelings in the enterprise of your life are like weather to a construction company. If it rains or snows or is unreasonably hot, it affects the ability to get work done. But the right response is not trying to change the weather, which would be impossible, or wishing the weather were different, which doesn't help. It is having contingency plans in place for bad weather, being ready, and managing projects in a way that is appropriate to the conditions on a given day. The process of managing this weather is called metacognition. metacognition. Metacognition, which te technically means thinking about thinking, is the act of experiencing your emotions consciously, separating them from your behavior, and refusing to be controlled by them. Yep, that's exactly right. You are not your feelings. Your feelings are simply information to give you, to help you understand what's going on around you in the world. The decision on how to react is yours. So I use the term detachment mm -hmm. to describe what a person, a leader, mm -hmm. a human being has to do when things are getting crazy, when there's emotions going on, right. when there's chaos going on. Right. I've now, you know, I talk about how to detach, like what the protocol is to detach. Talk to me a little bit about how you teach people to practice metacogn meta metacognition. So your mother, when you were a kid, um, what, did you, what did your mother call you when you were a little boy? Jocko. Yeah, okay. That's yep. good. That yep. makes sense. That's, that's your name. Yep, they gave it to me. But what, that's, that's your nickname. Yeah, it that's is a nickname. My real name is John. My father's name was also John. They didn't want to have two Johns in the house. They gave me the nickname. I'm from I'm from New England. They give you weird nicknames. I know. That's totally badass. I mean, good for your mom. <laughs> well, my dad, my dad actually made it up, and my dad now, you know, he wants a cut. Yeah, he, totally. He, he wants a cut. He's like, oh, I could have named you Biff or whatever. You yeah, know? I could have named you so, Chad yeah, or something. It's like, yeah, yeah. But you'd have made that cool, too. I mean, they could have called you, you know, you know. Puffin boy, that would, now that would be like super cool because right? you made it as such. So, um, what 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 we find is, and what I talk about is the is the fact that well, actually, to get back to this, your mother probably taught you, hey Jocko, when you're angry, count to ten. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's classic. Classic. Do you know who made up that that axiom, count to ten when you're angry? Well, it's in your book. 
Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson. And when you're really angry, count to 100. Yeah. And, and the point is get space between your limbic system and your prefrontal cortex. Now, your limbic system is a, is a console of tissue. It's, a, it's evolved over a 40 million year period. Its whole job is emotions and cravings and desires. That sends signals about what's going on. Now, where do you want and to be? And by the way, those things used to keep us alive. Oh, totally. And you know, negative emotions in particular. Thank right. God for your negative emotions. There are four uh, fundamental negative emotions, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. All of them are evolved for particular reasons. I mean, fear and anger come from threat and, and it's fight or flight. And that actually stimulates a part of the limbic system called the amygdala which will then illuminate when something crosses for the visual cortex in the occipital lobe of your brain. That will send a signal through your hypothalamus to your pituitary glands, to your adrenal glands sitting over your kidneys, spitting out stress hormones in 74 milliseconds after seeing that car barreling toward you in the crosswalk. That, of course, bypasses all of your conscious mind. And, that, and that's when your limbic system with negative emotions has saved your life for the thousandth or the 10,000th time. And you in the military more than that. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Your sadness keeps you aversive from being from being torn away from your kin, from the people that you love. Your disgust keeps you from eating something that you shouldn't eat because it might have a pathogen. All of these negative emotions are incredibly adaptive and super important, and we should be really grateful for them. We don't want them to be maladapted or to, to manage us is really what it comes down to. The way that you do that is making sure that your understanding of those emotions and your reactions are occurring not in the limbic system where they're created, but in the in the prefrontal cortex, part of the neocortex, the most evolved part of the human brain. The, the wrinkly outside of the brain is wrinkly because it's a one square meter piece of tissue that's scrunched up inside our cranium. The most evolved part of that, the most quintessentially human part of that is the prefrontal cortex, a bumper of tissue right behind your forehead. That's your C-suite. That's where you're making decisions. But it takes time for the information to get from your limbic system to your prefrontal cortex. Now, sometimes you want to take immediate action, like jumping out of the way of an oncoming car or doing something that you've taught yourself instinctively to do, like somebody's firing toward you, running toward the fire instinctively. So you've retrained your amygdala to do something that doesn't feel instinctive, but it becomes a new instinct. That's great. But most of the time, when you have aversive reactions, when you have aversive emotions, you want to understand them and make a decision. What is the right thing for me to do? I've got this negative feeling. What do I want to do? What's the decision that I'm actually going to make? And that requires time. Metacognition is a set of techniques to put time between what you feel and what you do. And the way that you do that is by understanding yourself is by saying, this is why meditation, most, for example, Vipassana meditation, which is a, a, a very famous meditative technique of, of understanding yourself. You say, you know, Jocko's feeling sad and angry today. Strange because things are going pretty well. So what's going on? You're talking about yourself in the third person. You're observing yourself at a certain remove, which sounds sort of weird, but, but remember, that's what detachment is. You are not your emotions. You're a person that has emotions. So treat them as such with that kind of remove. And that's like counting to 100 is effectively doing that. <laughs> Journaling your emotions is a very easy way to move the experience of your emotions into your prefrontal cortex. You can't write them down from your limbic system directly. You can only do that using your really modern brain. Uh, prayers of petition are a great way to do that. Lord, help me understand why I feel this way and help me give me the grace to, to act appropriately. What is your path? for me, given these things that I'm feeling. This is a perfect metacognitive technique. And, and when you understand that you aren't your emotions, 
And there are ways that your that the C-suite of your brain can actually act and, and help you to decide either to put a substitute emotion in place, to get a different reaction, to act as if you had different emotions, to disregard your emotions. Those are four, you got a repertoire of four things right there, but you can't do it if you're reactive. Yeah, so I had to learn how to do this. You know, I, being in the military, being yeah. in the SEAL teams, there's gonna be times where people are panicking, times where people are freaking out, times where people are angry, all these things. And so I had to learn how to do it. And then I realized I had to teach other people how to do yeah. it too. Because you can't have a subordinate leader that is losing his temper right. or is flying off the handle or is panicking and freezing up. So I actually figured out, oh, I gotta teach these guys to detach. Some of the things that I would teach them, take a step back away from the problem. Like, mm -hmm. even if it's six inches, like, even if you take a step, this might sound cowardly, but if you're in a gunfight, step into a doorway where you can, like, take a breath where you're not worried about dying in the next three seconds and you can take a look around and see what's happening. Take a breath. This is something that I learned from being on the radio. You, when you talk on the radio, you don't want to sound like you're panicked. You don't want to sound like you're right. freaking out. Number one, because you'll make everyone else panic and freak out, number two, because they'll make fun of you if they're not freaked out. Right. So you don't want either one of those two things to happen. Right. So whenever I keyed up the radio, before I'd key the radio to talk, I'd be something going on. Hey, it's Jocko. We need to move down the street to the next building, boom. And you wanna sound, but what that does is, and I didn't realize this at the time, but that is slowing down your breathing, your, 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 and when you slow down your breathing, it detaches you. Looking around, just the physical act of looking around and seeing what else you can see, and we actually do this to a point when you shoot your weapon, when you get done engaging a target, you train to mechanically turn your head to the left, turn your head to the right, so you can, you, you're physically scanning and it forces you to look around. Right. It, it, and also widening your view, widening your horizon, that's like a calming thing. This is why when we go to the ocean, we watch the sunset, makes us feel good. When we go to a, a mountain and we look at the broad mountain, it makes us feel good. Right. When we're in a, sitting in a cubicle all day and things are closed in and we're focused, we're too focused and it's, it makes us, it doesn't make us relax, it does the opposite, it right. makes us anxious about things. That's right. So these are the things to do to step back and make sure that you're not letting your emotions make decisions. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. if we're making emotional decisions, we got problems. And you know, this is, everybody listening to us as little kids, your kids are freaking out all the time. You know, they, 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 why? Because they're incredibly limbic. They're limbic animals. And so you say, you always yell at your kids, use your words. That's just saying, be metacognitive. And so in my house, we'd say to my kids, be metacognitive. It's like, oh man, what a drag, having a you know social scientist for a day. But, it, and, and, but people who are highly reactive are incredibly unpleasant to be around because they're, man, they're being managed by their emotions as opposed to their emotions managing them. All of us can be way, way better at this if we understand that these things are possible. And it just creates so much power. I, oh, it's been unbelievably life-changing for me. Now, it's, it's, it's tricky because the, the wiring between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex is not complete among adolescents. They have a very completely wired amygdala, for example, but an, an incompletely wired prefrontal cortex, which is why the threats and opportunities are so acute, but they don't understand. They can't make this metacognitive decisions about risk very appropriately, which is why they'll, you know, Mm -hmm. it, the, the full wiring of the brain is not, for women is about age 21, and for men it's about age 70. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, so the point is that you trying got- Trying to get me canceled, trying to get me in trouble here. <laughs> I got three daughters and a wife. <laughs> I mean, 
So, you know, this is one of the reasons that young guys, they take stupid risks yeah. a lot is because they're they're not as they, they can't they're not as good at being metacognitive be, literally because of the, the plasticity or the or the wiring of the brain is inadequate to it mm-hmm. at that point. But you can make it faster and better um, by by teaching people metacognitive techniques. And you can even do it with little kids yeah. and you can see dramatic results. Yeah, writing things down, and you mentioned it, I, the way I've described that to people when I say, hey, listen, if you're getting emotional, write write down, you know, as simple as when your parents would say, oh, make pros and cons, right? That's a way to detach from the emotions of the decision that you've gotta make. I tell people it literally detaches, you're now 18 inches from the problems you're looking at right. them, you wrote them down. I, when, uh, matter of fact, I, I opened today talking about my friend Seth, who's who died in a parachute accident, and, when he died, my he was very close with my whole family. You know, he was over for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these things because you know his family lived in another part of the country and he's you know he's in the SEAL teams, and so he's growing. My kids are growing up around him, right. and when he died, my son, who was very close with him, because you know we all surfed, we all played guitar, we're all hanging out all the time, almost like a bunch of uh, kids, you right? Know, basically, and but my son was very close with him, so when when Seth died maybe a couple months go by and he was, I think about 14, but he's in high school. And after a few months came home and you know, my son's not a very, you know, not a very like highly emotional person or anything, just a normal kid, right? right? And more important, like a normal boy. So there's not a lot of like emotional things going on. It's like, oh, well, what's the problem? No problem, we'll carry on. You know, just kind of that attitude. But one day he came home to me and said like, I, when I'm in school, I keep thinking about Seth and I, I'm, I'm feeling sad about it and I can't really concentrate. Right. And what I had learned, and this kind of crystallized this thought for me, was that when my friends had died, including Seth, what did I, when I lost guys in combat, what did I have to do? I had to go and write a eulogy. I knew I was, I know when one of my friends dies, I start writing because I got to write. I know I'm going to be talking in three days at the memorial. So that became <coughs> what, I've, what I had done. And what I realized was when you write, it helps you process those emotions. Right. So I told my son, hey, I want you to write a letter to Seth and tell him what you thought, what you thought of him, the good times you had, what you're gonna miss. And sure enough, he did it. And he never asked me about him again. Yeah, yeah this is a classic case. And you know, this uh, lists are, is, I mean, it's journaling is, so powerful because of this, because of the metacognitive effect that it actually has on the brain. And so another example of this is, that, you know, a lot of people, there's an explosion of so-called generalized anxiety in our in our society today, especially among young adults. And so they'll go to therapy and they'll say, you have anxiety, as if it were some sort of a switch, which is not, it's a, it's a dial. Every single person listening to us is anxious. The question is how high is the dial turned and how disruptive is it for their lives is what it comes down to. Anxiety is unfocused fear. Now, fear is an amygdala response to and to threat, and the way that 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 our bi- our biology is evolved is for th- fear to be intense and episodic. That's how fear is supposed to work. You're on the in the Pleistocene. You're living on the savanna. You hear a, a twig snap behind you. Your amygdala illuminates. You take off running. You don't think, "Oh, um, that must be one of my friends behind me." No, you're like, "That's probably bad," or it might be bad, and you don't stop to think. And you run. You climb a tree, and that's your amygdala saving your life. That's the fear response, episodic and intense. The problem is in modern life, it's constant and vague. 
And so, and that gives you a little drip of cortisol into your brain all the time, all the time, all the time. So that unfocused fear is generalized anxiety. And the way that you deal with this most appropriately is by focusing it is focusing your fear. And the best way to do that is when your chest is tight and you've got butterflies in your stomach and you don't know why, you say, all right, I'm, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit here, so I take out a piece of paper. Number one, what's, what am I afraid of right now? Like, like, come on, put it down here. What am I worried about? I'm worried about something. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of something right now. Write it down. What is it? Why do I feel this way? What's the worst thing that can happen? And what am I gonna do if it happens? Now let's go on to number two. By the time you get to number five, you're like, I can handle this. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you've focused your unfocused fear and you've taken generalized anxiety and you've, oh, you've organized it around the way fear is supposed to feel, which is a normal part of a normal life. Mm -hmm. And it's a positive thing when it's the right, thank in, God in the right it. mode. Thank God for fear. You'd be dead. You wouldn't make it past your second birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fast forward. And by the way, uh, much of what you're saying is in the book. Get, go get the book. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But uh, fast forward to hear a little bit, a section that's about focus less on yourself. And you've got this really interesting, I don't know if I want to call it an experiment, but they, they take these three groups of people, uh, 263 participants, and they group them into different three three different groups with different set of instructions. The first group is called the moral deeds group. And they're instructed, today, you have to go and do at least one moral deed for someone else. Go out and help somebody else. Random act of kindness. The next one is the moral thoughts group. And what they're directed to do is go out and have at least one moral thought for other people. And then the last group, is the treat yourself group. And it's today, do at least one positive thing for yourself. So these are the three groups. The fee, and you go into some detail about it, but the, the, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit here. The moral deeds group reported higher scores on a range of well-being measures than the moral thoughts group, and both reported higher scores than the treat yourself group. Right. Those caring for others actively felt greater purpose in life and sense of control while others did not. They were also the only ones who felt less anger and social isolation. Yeah. That's, you may want to pay attention to that people. Yeah, 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 this is the thing. This is, if you don't know, if you're feeling bad and you don't know what to do, help somebody. If you're if you don't know what to do and you're feeling crummy, go help somebody. It's, go do something. I'm, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I have people, you know, say, "Oh, I can't. I don't really know what I should be focused on. I can't find a purpose." And I'm like, "Oh, you you don't can't figure out what to do? Cool. Yeah. Go help someone else. Yeah, right. Go or, down to a soup kitchen and start helping other people." Yeah, yeah. Or or what the, the advice that a lot of young people get to get today is if you're feeling really crummy, self care. You need some self self care. I've even heard radical self care. I mean, what the <laughs> heck is radical self care? The whole point is other care, man. Is what it comes down to. If you're feeling lousy, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling rejected, if you're feeling blue, go do something for somebody. And, and by the way, there's so much that you can do. There's so much around us. You know, we're in Southern California right now, which is, I mean, there's so much homelessness around us. What can you do? I was actually talking to a group of, of, of Christian college students. And they're like, so, so what does it mean to love my neighbor? What, what do I do for one of the homeless people? And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. Should I give them money, not give them money? Probably not because there's so much substance abuse and, and give them a sandwich. Sure, absolutely. But, but then go one step further. You want to you you make it radical? Hmm. Say to the guy, would you pray for me and my family? 
Why? Because you just gave him dignity. Because you said, I need you. I need you. Why? I mean, look, Christian people, we believe that God hears the, the cries of the poor. Special. God hears the cries of the poor. So you, he needs a sandwich? Great. You need his prayers to get you into heaven. That's what you need. So ask him for them. I mean, your life's going to change. You're going to help him mm-hmm. because you gave him the dignity, but your life is actually going to change. Your day is going to change. Your outlook is going to change. You ready for that? You ready, ready to be a radical? Or you can, or you can go get a massage. <laughs> go get cucumbers in your eyes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you talk about these pillars. Um, you say you can find thousands of dubious happiness hacks on the internet to adopt for a monthly subscription fee, of course. We're getting some <laughs> One weird from trick. You know, don't eat grapes. I don't know. You, know? <laughs> uh, you talk about the social science research and you get to these four pillars. The four pillars are family, friendship, work, and faith. Yeah. Family, these are people we are given in our lives and generally don't choose, except for our spouse. Friendship, this is the bond with people we love deeply but who aren't kin. Work, this is our toil to earn our daily bread, to create value in our lives and the lives of others. It might be paid or unpaid in the marketplace or at home. And faith, this does not mean a specific religion, but rather is a shorthand term for having transcendent view and approach to life. Yeah. These are the four. I mean, it says that there's 10,000 habits of the happiest people, but they're all trivial. You know, should you eat asparagus or broccoli? Should you do MMA or resistance training at on, on, a, on any given Wednesday? I mean, it's great, but and it's interesting. But the truth of the matter is that there's a portfolio of things that we need to invest in every day, sort of the happiness 401k plan. Every day, pay attention to your faith. Every day, pay attention to your spiritual walk, the sense of transcendent, making yourself small, getting out of your own personal psychodrama, zooming out, right? <laughs> Second is your family life. And you know, family are these mystical relationships. I mean, it, it, we could talk about the, the neurophysiology of oxytocin, which is a neuropeptide that bonds us to each other. We sort of mentioned that a little bit earlier, and that's especially acute, especially intense in the case of family relationships, but it's magic, man. You remember when your first baby was born? And you made eye contact with your first baby, and you would literally die for that baby in one second. And that was, it was just like, it's like the fourth of July inside your head. And it's weird because you know you didn't know that baby. That baby didn't know you. And and yet, and that's magic. And and people are walking away from those relationships because of idiocies like politics. It's so insane, getting conscripted into some baby boomer politicians culture war. It's just nuts. And then friendship. You know, friendship is a crisis in America, a huge crisis. It's one of the great climate changes in happiness is the fact that, that technology has made it harder and harder for us to have in-person relationships uh, and real friendships, not deal friendships and not virtual friendships. Deal friendships, people can help you professionally. Virtual friendships, people you don't see and touch, those aren't good enough. You need real friendships. They're good and useless is what it comes down to. And last but not least, you gotta do two things with your work. You gotta earn your success the old fashioned way through hard work, personal merit and responsibility, and you gotta serve others. Mm -hmm. And if you do those things, your life's gonna change. But you gotta not be distracted and you have to pay attention. You have to do it on purpose. And so that's actually worth a strategic plan for the rest of your life is faith, family, friends, and work. And I mean, I have, those are the, those are the strategies that actually get you to the basic macronutrients. The protein, carbohydrates, and fat of happiness are really enjoyment and satisfaction and purpose. Those are the three macronutrients of happiness. And the way that you feed yourself those things are, are with faith, family, friends, and work that we're talking about here. And you need a strategy for that. I have a, 
I have a very complex strategy that I have put together with a spreadsheet where I take my, my macronutrients, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose, and I have the micronutrients that scale up into those macronutrients. And every month I'm looking at them, and every half year, every my birthday and half birthday, I'm, I'm putting together a strategy to make sure that it's on point and I'm making progress. That's how important that stuff is. And, and I'm, you know, I'm 60% happier than I was five years ago, so works for me. And, and I've seen it actually work for my students as well. <laughs> the chunk on family, you got a whole chunk on family in the book. Yeah. It's uh it's called Build Your Imperfect Family. So yeah. I think everyone that doesn't need any explanation. Yeah. You talk about conflict, acknowledging family conflict is good. Yeah. Improves communication. Yeah. Like this is just that acknowledgement. Like when you have an argument with somebody or disagreement with somebody, it's okay. Totally. As long as you don't get emotional about it and fly yeah. off the handle. If you do don't, that. then you don't love enough. You know, I'm married to a Spaniard, so it's like 10,000 fights. <laughs> you know, for Spanish people, it's just the, it's a, it's a kind of communication is, you know, <laughs> angrily yelling. But the, but you know. I'm married to a Brit and there's like, no. Stiff we, upper we lip. No, we don't, we don't have arguments even. We're just like so chill. Wow, you know? what's yeah. that like? I wonder. Awesome. I mean, yeah, yeah. She, you know, we we just don't. I mean, first of all, I don't get emotional about things. I don't get mad about really anything. You know, yeah. my, like no matter what my wife does, doesn't really make me mad. And my wife, when she gets mad, which I do things that will make her mad, it lasts about eight to twelve minutes. Right. She'll clean aggressively during those eight to twelve minutes. That's what that's what her thing is. She'll aggressively clean. And that's how you know. Yeah, and that's how I know. And then, like, uh, oh boy. and then she's then she realizes that you know I'm probably just I'm just dumb or you know I do dumb things at a minimum, and she forgives me and we move on. Just but, Jocko being Jocko. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, and we all have. How long have you been married? Um, as I tell she's my wife, she's gonna be cleaning aggressively tonight. When as, she I tell, this as I tell, well, she's already heard me say. I always say the same thing when somebody asks me that question. I go, I don't know, but it seems like forever. But yeah, that's yeah. what my I wife say. is like. We've it seems like ten minutes underwater, eight years or something like that. <laughs> twenty-eight years, twenty something like that. Yeah, twenty-seven, yeah. twenty-eight years. I've thirty-two. It's 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 you know, and and she's the last person you lay your eyes on as you take your dying breath. My wife. Uh huh. Oh yeah, I'm sure she will be. Yeah. It's beautiful. She might be barking orders at me or something. She'll, no, she'll be cleaning aggressively. <laughs> be, Why are you leaving? <laughs> uh, you talk about this complementary relationship yeah. thing and, and how, you know, you go through this, and again, get the book, it's all in there, but, you know, this idea that, oh, you gotta find someone that's like you right. to be, to have a happy marriage, when in fact, the, I wouldn't say the exact opposite, yeah. but certainly, a little bit of the opposite is true. This is a huge problem in modern dating because it's interesting because I've looked at the data, as you can imagine. Um, when I'm teaching this class at, at HBS called Leadership and Happiness, this is the unit they're most in, they're most interested in is romantic relationships mm-hmm. and the neurobiology and psychology of romantic relationships. So I talked to him about the neurochemical cascade of falling in love, what's actually happening hormonally in your brain, What's the point after which you can't control it anymore? So, you know, when you have a case study of a CEO gets fired for, for having a, a romantic relationship with a subordinate, yeah. and they're always saying at the end, I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, what happened is you, there's a certain point beyond which you can't let it go, and this is the reason you should not be 
palling around with people with whom you could conceivably have a romantic relationship at work. Mm-hmm. That's the reason that you have to you know, guard your affections and guard your heart. That's the reason that you shouldn't be staring into each other's eyes for three minutes because you're gonna be releasing a ton of neuromodulators into your brain that's gonna to start to capture your brain. It's gonna to start to, to, to hijack the control of your brain on the basis of this neurochemical cascade. And I walk them through all that, how the science works. And they're like, holy mackerel. I can also talk to them about how you can fall in love with almost anybody who would be appropriate to you, to your, you know, your, 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 um, your sexual orientation and your age and whether or not you're single, et cetera, et cetera. But how you can, through a series of steps, actually initiate that cascade. But then I talk about the mistakes that people Initiated are making. on the other person? Yeah, yeah, exactly, sure. yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of research that shows, for example, that, I mean, there's this one famous experiment by a guy who teaches a psychologist at SUNY uh, Stony Brook, a guy named Art Aaron, great psychologist. And he did, a, he did a, uh, a piece of research in which he did an experiment in which people who were complete strangers but who were theoretically capable of falling in love, um, college students, they would come into a room. They'd met each other for the first time. They started by asking each other a series of 36 questions of escalating intimacy. So the first is something dumb, like if you could have dinner with anybody, who would it be? Mm-hmm. And, and by the 30th question of 36 is, when's the last time you cried and why? You know, right? And so it's like, what's your, tell me about your relationship with your mother, you know, this kind of thing. And, and then at the end, then they have to stare into each other's eyes for four minutes which is just initiating this neurobiological explosion in their brains because that is actually how we release oxytocin. And so you're bonding with the other person, this love molecules endogenously on a pump. And, and people walked out and one after the other said, I feel like I just fell in love. I am, I, I, that person knows more about me than, than my girlfriend of six months or two years. And, and one of the couples in that original experiment got married I mean, not the day, not the same day, but you know, they started going out. And, and so I, I talked to them about actually how this works and how it can be used for good and how it can be used for bad and how it can ruin your life and how it can wreck your career. And then I talked to them about the mistakes that they're making because they're not initiating these things in their dating lives. You know, if they're on the apps dating, you find that people have way more uh, choice, a lot more variety than they've ever had before of potential mates. And they like and are attracted less and are less successful in dating than ever before. Why is that? It's a real perplexing, but it turns out it's scientifically very straightforward. The reason is because they're selecting people on the basis of similar characteristics that they're curating in their dating profiles. So when you put together your dating profile, we're all such narcissists. It's like, it's like, who do I want? I want like, if, if I were dating right now, it's like, I wanna, I don't know, I, what do I want? I wanna date, Arthur Brooks. It's like, <laughs> you might as well. That is so not hot. And, and so, and so what, what, what people do is that they, they describe somebody they want to date who's more or less like their sibling. And, and so that's one of the reasons that they, they get people who are a good match for them as a friend, but not a good match for them as a mate. What you need is a baseline of compatibility. Same religion, that's fine. Same region of the country, that's fine. But then you need complementarity. That's why matchmakers are so good matchmakers will find somebody who's the same enough, very low level, and then really different. There's tons of research that actually shows that when people are really different than us, that we sense the neurobiological difference or the biological differences than us because that gives us a sense of the immunological differences so that when we have kids, the kids have a more diverse immunological profile and they're more likely to survive. So for example, there's one experiment from the 90s that's really great that's been replicated a bunch of times, so it's legit, where these these college students, these women, they're given shoe boxes with T-shirts in them. 
the t-shirts have been worn for 48 straight hours by different guys that they don't know. And they have to smell these holes in the shoebox. They have to smell the shoebox <laughs> and to say how attractive the guy is just on the basis of the smell. Then they match up how immunologically different the guy who was wearing the t-shirt is from the woman and compare it to how hot she thought he was on the basis of the smell of his sweat. Turns out the more different he is, the more you like him because the olfactory bulb in your brain is ascertaining that he is physiologically more different than you, and so your kids are gonna be healthier. So this all translates into find different people. Date people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different countries and different races and go wild, man. I mean, it's like, it's like embrace diversity, literally. <laughs> Check. Uh, another thing you got in this family section is the negativity virus. You say the ambient culture in a family or any close-knit group determines the ability of the members to solve problems. Think of it as a, like a room temperature. If the room temperature in your house is 100 degrees and you're feeling too hot, it doesn't really matter how many clothes you take off, you'll still be too hot. Similarly, negative culture in a family can take can make problem-solving impossible, so there's no growing growth or learning, just chronic unhappiness. This often occurs because of emotional contagion which psychologists have studied extensively. There's not a particular problem to solve, just a this sucks attitude that moves between family members. Yeah, Ooh. or between community members or between, you know, when I go into companies, this is the first thing I look for yeah. is emotional, negative emotional contagion. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is to help leaders inject a positive emotional virus into the company. This is, must be true in the military oh, as well. So this is, when I read that, that's a, the same thing I thought. I There was platoons, you could see the platoon, You'd watch the platoon yeah. for three minutes and you go, oh, this is gonna be a problem. I walk into a company, yeah. I've walked into companies where it, you feel the horror of the negativity that's going yeah. on inside that company. And you gotta get a grip on that really quick and get it changed around. For sure, this is the problem in academia today. It's an emotional virus in academia of sadness and anger. Sadness and anger. What 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 what's rewarded? Sadness and anger is rewarded in a lot of academia, and that's a huge problem for the the well being of the students and faculty. You know that's and so and that requires leadership that's going to inject a better virus is what it comes down to. So you got to get it under control. You have to acknowledge the fact that the the place is sick. Mm -hmm. You have to say this is not what we want. We're not going to create a culture where this is encouraged. And then you have to have a leader who has leaders under her or himself who are propagating a, a better virus. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> forgiveness. Yeah. Huge part of things, huge part of the world, huge part of the failure of, of people and cultures and countries. Um, you talk about forgiveness and you have some different strategies. Um, there's discussion. Let's talk through this so I can let go of the hurt. Explicit forgiveness, I forgive you. Nonverbal forgiveness, such as showing affection after a fight. And minimization, which involves classifying the transgression as unimportant and simply choosing to disregard it. All four of these strategies can be effective. Depends on the severity of the grievance. Right. But the whole point is forgive more. Forgive more. That's the secret to staying married, is forgiving. Mm. That's the secret. Because she's going to bum you out and you're gonna bum her out, and you have to have a policy of forgiveness, an explicit policy of forgiveness. And so you, know, the, it, you don't necessarily need to say, 
when she's really mad at you, look, honey, I forgive you because that's going to make her angrier mm. because you know she she feels like she's the one who's aggrieved, and that's yep. typically how conflict works. But the whole point is you got to say basically, you know, by the end of the day, I'm gonna I'm forgive, man. It's just that's what we do. It's how we roll. We forgive. We forgive our kids. We forgive our loved ones and forgive over and over and over again. Now, not forgiving is basically like holding on to a hot coal, right? And and hoping it burns the other person. Mm-hmm. That's it's not going to work, and it's an incredibly self defeating strategy. Is the, is the way that this turns out? And a lot of people will hold on to it because they actually want to be fired up by it. They want to get the energy that actually comes from the anger and the hostility and the hatred toward others. And it's it's uh, it's one of the best ways to become ineffective, personally. And and it's it's a it's a true and tried and true way to become as unhappy as possible. Yeah, and, and then you talk again in the book about conditional forgiveness and pseudo forgiveness. Yeah, classic. Conditional forgiveness is I'll forgive you when you do X and Y, and pseudo forgiveness is like just not true. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to act this if I forgave you, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not, and I'm going to hold it over your head, and I'm going to bring it up every. You know, it's like remember when you did that thing? It's like I thought you forgave me for that. Yeah, well I did, but now we're bringing it up again. <laughs> Um, another challenge in the family situation, dishonesty. Yeah. And you say here, in the 1990s, the writer and psychotherapist Brad Blanton argued just that in his book, Radical Honesty. When the truth is hard to accept, telling it can have costs, including frayed relationships at home. But Blanton suggested that complete honesty, no white lies, no exceptions, is worth the consequences because it can reduce stress, deepen connections with others, and reduce emotional reactivity. Yeah, this is actually uh, a strategy that a lot of young people who are listening to us could adopt to great effect. Is to say, you know, I'm, I'm gonna stop lying. And it's so, so many people's lives are revolving around a series of shadings of the truth and the way that they talk about themselves to protect themselves or whatever it happens to be and say, I'm not gonna lie anymore. I'm not gonna lie about anything. I'm not gonna lie about how many beers I drank. I'm not gonna lie about how many people I dated. I'm not gonna lie about how long I've been looking for a job and I've been off the market. I'm gonna take every single shading of the truth out of my, out of my resume. I'm gonna talk to people in an honest way. When I don't like something, I'm gonna say it. When I actually do like somebody, and this is the really scary thing for a lot of young people. When I like somebody, I'm gonna tell them. Right? It's like, oh, man, I find you so attractive. And saying just that kind of radical honesty, which opens you up to all sorts, exposes you. It exposes you. And, and, but then you become so much tougher and, and you've got nothing to hide anymore. It can be truly a life-changing thing. This is the one truth is the one intervention that can actually make more difference in the lives of a lot of young people that don't feel like their life is on track than almost anything else. It's kind of like the, it's almost like the magic bullet. There is not one hack because life is all about habits. But you know how that, you know, you know, what was it, Admiral, what was it, McRaven? Who McRaven? Talked, yeah, who said, you know, make your bed. Yep. Right? Okay, fine. But what that is, 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 is have integrity. Even when it doesn't really matter, have integrity. And in so doing, you put your life in order. To stop lying, that's real. I mean, that is, uh, that, and, and man, you wake up every day and say, today's another day, I'm not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's gonna be good and sometimes it's gonna be bad, but it's gonna be interesting. <laughs> when I think that I've had quite a few discussions about this over the years, and because this is a huge component of moving forward in life, right? Is telling the truth. And so we get into these discussions where, well, you know, if my wife makes chicken for dinner, in fact, this is the first time we talked about it on the podcast, it was years and years ago. 
my wife used to cook very dry chicken. Uh, this <laughs> now, cook it for an hour. This, and, this yeah. now has been completely solved because she got received thousands of recipes and cooking instructions on how to cook chicken <laughs> and keep it moist. So now she cooks the best chicken in the world. But she used to cook dry chicken. And, you know, you think through, okay, when she says, how's the chicken? You know, she spent probably two hours making it because five minutes to prep it that she had to cook it for an hour and 55 minutes <laughs> <laughs> to get all the liquid and fluid out of it. But it took her two hours to make this thing, right? So I come home, she's been working, she went out and got the stuff, she got it ready, she's watching three kids, four kids, whatever, and she, you know, she puts the chicken in front of me and says, how's the chicken? And the common theory is, well, you tell her the truth. Right. Hey. This dry, can you get me a gallon of water, please, over here to wash right. this thing down? What's that gonna get me? Where's that gonna take me? But yes, I should tell the truth, but, and here's where I, I, I had a little bit of enlightenment in the way that I lived my life. Hmm. For me, being very hardcore with the truth, I make sure that I aim that at my, myself first. Mm -hmm. So, when my wife asks me, how's the chicken? The first thing I should ask myself is, well, how important is this to me as a person right now? Like, what's the truth about this chicken? What What is the truth about this chicken? The truth about this chicken is, my wife spent all day making it, right. my wife did all these things, my wife put care and effort into this chicken, and that's freaking amazing. Right. And you know how this chicken is? It's awesome. Right. This chicken is awesome. Because, and this is the same with, you know, if you, if you work for me and, you know, I you, you're not doing what you're supposed to be. You you're, you got your project turned in late. Right. Okay. Radical honesty. I go up to you and say, Hey, you know, Arthur, you turned in this project late. I'm gonna write you up if this happens again. Okay. That's one way of doing it. But actually, if I aim that at myself first and I say, Hey, Arthur, I noticed that you got your project turned in late. I don't think I gave you the support that you needed. I don't think I gave you the resources. And I actually was reviewing our email chain, and I didn't really clarify the actual timeline in a specific way so I made it clear enough so you could understand. Next time, those are the things I'm gonna change so that this project will get done or the next project will get done on time. So that's me being radically honest with myself yeah. and the things that I can change, the things that I can do better, and I think that's the point to start at. Yeah, yeah, no, being honest with yourself is the beginning of radical honesty. Yeah. Being honest with others is derivative. And, and the people that we like to lie to the most are, are ourselves. We love to lie to oh, ourselves. Yeah. We lie to ourselves constantly. <laughs> and then we'll say, oh, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. But, and this is a very good point. It's also the framing of what we're talking about. The truth of the matter is that she's not asking you, how is the chicken? She's asking you, how do you feel about her taking care of you? And you feel really good about that. Mm -hmm. And you can say, yeah, and the chicken is one tiny part of it. The, the temperature and the dryness of the mm -hmm. chicken is one is 1%. Of the answer to this particular question, right. so let's answer the ninety-nine percent, which really matters. Yeah, and and it's it's critical because we can do that in almost everything that we do, and that's the way that we can use the truth as a gift and not as a weapon. And you can also a a answer that question with a question, which is, "Can you please pass the ketchup?" <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can you, can you? <laughs> uh, as you go through the book, look, you go through the details of friendship, of of work. Um, you know what what you detail these things and in in how we can move these things forward and, and you know you end up with really nice kind of pragmatic synopsis of each of these you know you say blissful work of friendship 
Friendship is incorrectly seen by many people as something that just occurs naturally without conscious effort or work. This is false. Like everything else important, friendship requires attention and work. It must be built on purpose. And you go through the, the protocol. The protocol. Friendship is ruined when you look for people who are useful. Uh, too many deep friendships today are spoiled by differences of opinion. Isn't this the truth right Yeah, now? for sure. Uh, the goal for long-term romance is a special kind of friendship, not undying passion. So you go through these things and you give really, really pragmatic advice. This isn't like a book that's- It's not a theory book. Just about theory. Anybody wants to read the underlying science, which is approximately 0% of the readers, um, it's all in the the end notes to the book. You'll get the actual academic citations of what we're talking about. If you wanna read the neuroscience literature, great. More power to you. Anybody who wants to come study with me and do their PhD under me at Harvard, that's great. Read the the end notes and we'll write some articles together. but, But for the rest of humanity that just wants to live a better life, in, a, in an evidence-based, science-based way, that that's, Oprah and I wrote the book for you. Um, and I'll close out the book with this. Again, get the book. There's so much information in here. Um, you talk about, you, you already mentioned this, but become a teacher, right? Yeah. And you say the reason is pretty simple. You already know it. You need to be metacognitive with the information to use your prefrontal cortex so you can understand and use it. The best way to do that is to be able to explain it clearly. This is what I, I learned that I was lucky enough in my career, I told you before we started that I had a very lucky career. One of the things that was so lucky is when I was an enlisted guy, my last couple years as an enlisted guy, I worked in the training cell at SEAL Team One where I taught right. land warfare, combat swimmer, close quarters combat, urban combat, I taught those things. Right. And when you teach, you learn. It's magic. And yeah. By the time I was, by the time I was now in an off in a, in a leadership role, I had learned well where I had crystallized information really uh-huh. at a pretty young age. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it made it much. You made you're, you're much better at what you do right now because of that training and, and and the development of your crystallized intelligence. Before that was your strength, which is so great. You were able to walk from one curve to the other. You're probably much happier than I mean. You had a glorious, really great career in the military. You're probably happier now is my guess, because you're living your right curve. You're living your correct curve, right? I would say that I've, I'm have i always pretty happy. And <laughs> I was very happy when I was in the military the, the entire time. It's funny, you know, I look back, I was a new guy in a SEAL platoon. I was so happy. I was on a in an ARG platoon on a ship in a 115 degree birthing space yeah, I've heard with about 18 that from other my, SEALs. I've heard about that from my son, how fun that is. I was happy. For three weeks. I was happy we were happy. Yeah. You know, like that's, and then became an officer in a leadership position, all the pressure, happy. That's great. Just happy and then uh, retired, found other missions to execute on, still happy, still getting after it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And But a lot of people listening to us, they don't, that's hard to relate to because they find that they're they're more melancholic. Mm-hmm. They find that happiness comes a little harder to them. The truth is that we all have different different aptitudes for it. We all have different characters for it. We all have the same emotions, but we have different intensities of emotions. So one of the things that we talk about in the book, and I do a lot with my work, is I can actually, I can give people a personality test on the intensity of their positive and negative emotions. You're clearly a very high positive affect person. You're probably a relatively moderate, low affect person, uh, um, negative affect negative. person. So you're, you're, you would fit the cheerleader profile a lot. You know, um, I fit the most. going to enjoy that yeah. one. And, and well, I mean, it's like, yeah, especially because you're there with the pom poms and a little skirt right now. It's really, it's really becomes you, Jocko. <laughs> um, I'm the mad scientist, which means I have very high positive and very high negative effect. And this is normal. About a quarter of the population has this. 
Um, a quarter of the population has high positive, low negative affect naturally. This is the poetic affect. It has to do with a part of the limbic system called the, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's hyperdeveloped, that's unusually big for people who are, are able to ruminate on certain things, which gives them a melancholic nature. It also tends to make them very creative because you ruminate on a business plan or an opera or a book of poetry. <clears throat> it makes them very romantic because you ruminate on another person. That's called infatuation. And those are beautiful things, but you have to learn to you have to learn to manage that affect. And there are people who are very low affect people, low positive and low negative. It's not they're not unhappy or happy. They just have low expression mm-hmm. of their positive and negative emotions. And every every one of us is in one of these quadrants. And and all of us, it's a gift. No matter what it is, you just have to know what it means and how to use it. How to surround yourself with people who can help you, who can complete you. And learn how to manage it in a way that's that builds you up and helps other people as well. So some people will listen to you and say like, like Jocko's happy doing all these really aversive and hard things. You know why can't I be like that? Well, because God made you different is the whole point. But that doesn't mean that you can't manage yourself. That doesn't mean that you can't make yourself better. You can't use your natural predilections for the good of yourself and good of other people. God wanted poets too, you know, and and a whole world of cheerleaders would be problematic. Actually, you know, we want all the different kinds of people that we have and we and we need all different kinds of people that we have. But all of us can be much better than we were. Yeah. Um, well, that's the latest book. Um, what does that get us up to speed for right now? Yeah, it came out in September 2023. And we're talking about that about, you know, two months after the book came out. It's been a wild ride being on <laughs> tour with Oprah Winfrey. has been quite something. There's a lot of security. Okay. Yeah, a lot more security than, you know, people are like Arthur who, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And it's, it's, uh, it's been a joy. I'm actually starting the next book, which will come out probably in spring of 2025 called Start Strong which is the science that people need to start their adult lives in their 20s in a way that will give them the absolute best trajectory for success, love, and happiness going forward. Science-based approach on how to, how to build your life starting good and young. And when's that one coming out? In the spring of 2025. Okay. In the meantime, we're doing a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of media projects. Oprah and I, we, did a, we started a, we did a, a limited run podcast together um, based on the book. Um, and what's that called? That's that's part of her Super Soul series. Okay. On, on, but it's called Build the Life You Want. So if you look on YouTube, okay. there's a series of conversations that we did at her place in uh, in Santa Barbara. And uh, and who knows? You know, we're we're talking to you know different television and you know video outfits on what we can do next. But the whole point is that people want to be happier, and it sure is great to be on the cutting edge of that business. Yeah, it is. It beats working. And people can find you. You got ArthurBrooks.com. Yeah. You've got. You're on Twitter, yeah, at Arthur Brooks. You're on Instagram at Arthur C Brooks. You got a YouTube channel. Got a YouTube channel at Arthur Brooks one two three. Yeah, did you know that? Really? It's at Arthur Brooks one two three. That's good to know. And then Thanks. you're on Facebook at yeah. Arthur Brooks. Um, yeah, and, and you're giving uh, giving particular ideas. The one thing I'm not doing is you know diet and exercise, but you know, that's why I'm going to other other people. I'm, I I do work. I've done some stuff with Peter Atia lately. Oh, right on. Yeah, and yeah. you know good good guys like that because that's. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiast, but I'm an amateur. <laughs> awesome. Um, Echo Charles, you got yes. any questions? Yeah, got a few. Oh. Yeah. Limited, oh. but oh. I got oh. on this one. Okay, so uh, as, as far as um, friendships go, yeah. right, in person, uh-huh. better. So what about uh, exchanging memes? 
Is that conducive to friendship? It, it is. And part of the reason is because humor is a great source of bonding. And so yeah. as long as they're not bitter, yeah. as long as they're not denigrating, as long as they're not tearing other people down, that's important. Bonding over <laughs> stuff that's actually legitimately, I know. It's Whatever, like, oh, that's true. Well, we I just got rid it. of all your memes. But anyway, <laughs> that if you're doing something that's genuinely funny, you know, yeah. humor is the, is the, the universal language um, of friendship. You know, it's and it's an amazing thing because we actually understand the neurophysiology of how how humor works, yeah. and it's just a beautiful thing. It just lights up your brain. So let me ask you this then. Okay, so I have a twin brother. Yeah, is he identical or identical, fraternal? Yeah. Wow. So we we grew up like I think a lot of guys and even military like this. You know, when you play team sports like this, where part of the humor and part of the fun and the bonding is insulting each other. Yeah. You know, but I always. Um, I always had it in my head where the the better insults are the ones that are more funny than insulting yeah. kind of a thing. And the more clever, I guess, yeah. you know, so it's like this match back and forth yeah. where it's like, you know, and when you take offense, you kind of automatically lose, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. What's with that? Like, well, why do people yeah. bond on that? Whatever, but you're the same way. <laughs> no, 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 just, you know, Guilty as charged. Yes, sir. <laughs> the, the, the closest relationships are ones where we can we can recognize the foibles and weaknesses of a friend. And then and make it into a source of of laughter as opposed as opposed to a source of actual derision or contempt. Yeah. This is the same. This is the thing because you know, look, we all have weaknesses, and when you see the weakness in somebody else and treat it with affection, right, generally right. speaking, the way that the guys will treat will they'll express that affection is with humor. <laughs> and if it's understood as such, look, there's a, there's a fine line. And so when you're making fun of your buddy because of you know whatever he's got, you know, his premature balding or whatever it happens to be. Socks. If it's a <laughs> if it's a source of affection, you're gonna talk about it one way. If it's a source of contempt or actual insult, you're gonna treat it in a different way. And that line is really fine between them. And when you've actually gone from making them laugh to making them unhappy, that's when you know you've crossed that line a little bit. So it's and it, and it can be pretty subtle. It can be pretty subtle. Believe me, as a guy, I'm like a bald guy. You know, we're we're, we're sensitive. <laughs> Understood completely. And then um, also the oxytocin in the workplace scenario yeah. uh-huh. you're talking about. So let's say my wife hypothetically mm-hmm. has a coworker. Yeah. You know, coed coworker that she's close to nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of a thing. Well, talking hypothetically, yeah. I'm my wife's coworker currently, so just yeah, that's that good. Mind. That's right. But is that a red flag? It well it depends. And so one of the things, one of the big mistakes that people make in companies is number one, saying that you actually can't start romance in the workplace. I mean, mm-hmm. I understand the liability that comes along with that, but about 17% of people meet their spouse at work. Mm-hmm. The problem is when people who are not available meet each other at work and mm-hmm. have an illicit relationship. That's yeah. when the real problems come. And usually those are pursuant to them doing a lot of stuff outside of work. Mm-hmm. And that meant mean at work, but they're having personal conversations and a lot of one-on-one time and a lot of deep conversations, a lot of the revelation of personal traits and what's going on with their home relationship and a lot of deep looking in the eye, which will actually instigate oxytocin release. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing that workplaces will do that actually relate that, that winds up creating chaos in the relationships of their of their employees is a lot of offsite activities for team building. Mm-hmm. So if you're going canoeing with somebody who could technically be your romantic partner, but you're you already have a partner, yeah. and you're it, the canoeing with somebody, the outside fraternizing activity with somebody will stimulate a lot of the feelings that you'll get because you'll associate fun and oxytocin with a person who's not your spouse, and that's dangerous. 
Interesting. You got to protect yourself. You got to take measures. You got to guard your heart. And and if you're a boss, you should be helping and not making it harder for people to guard their hearts. So if you're a husband at home, uh, your wife's going out on canoeing, team building scenarios with their coworkers. It's not necessarily like, you know, the husband might get accused of being this jealous husband. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just friends and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. But it and it might be true. It might be just friends, yeah. you know, and, and you have to trust the integrity of your partner. You want to have a partner who has real integrity. But the whole point is that if they're just they they're they really, really, really love those activities that they, I mean, that's just, you know, people are different, but there's mm-hmm. risk. Yeah. That comes from this. There's just so, natural risk that comes from this. So the husband kind of has a leg to stand on some of the time. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I that yeah. The biology suggests that that is that there is risk involved. Now, how do you react to that in a mature way? That's a different kettle of fish. Mm. Kettle of fish. It's true, but yeah. it's not nothing, bro. It's not nothing, <laughs> bro. I'm telling you, Ray. You get a, a pretty girl at work mm. with a husband. And some single guys at work as well or whatever, but you think the single guys have respect for the all the oxytocin or lack thereof at home and all this stuff? They don't. So I'm just saying. Yeah, it's work is a funny thing because people spend so much time there. Most people spend more time at work than they spend with their spouse. Oh, yeah. And when you're spending time with somebody in a very tight-knit work team, and especially having intimate conversations that are not work-related, and especially doing things where they're sharing fun activities, and and it's more time than you're actually spending with your spouse. I mean, you're you know you're opening up yourself to feelings that you probably didn't anticipate. Yeah. Oh, uh, last question. Mm. So when we're in a chamber French horn scenario, chamber music, yeah. French. Who are we playing for? Yeah. Like what? Not, not at the nightclub or nothing like no, that. No, it's not a nightclub. It's usually audiences. And so what people they have the chamber music concert series where where people subscribe and they come and they hear that that they'll they'll book four or five different groups over the course of the year and then they'll yeah. they'll come and it'll be a, like a Sunday out. Yeah, and yeah. And then the touring group comes through. Oh, that's cool. Like yeah. where would it be at? Like a um like a concert a civic hall? center. Yeah, yeah. Concert hall. So like a jazz band, comparatively yeah, kinda, speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah the exactly. punk rock, I guess, right? Yeah. So it'd be like, okay, so there's like an audience yeah, exactly community right. that likes. That's super into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so once again, you know, rising that in uh, that hierarchy is pretty esoteric. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like poetry, right? You know how yeah. you go down and watch yeah. the poetry and stuff? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, that's that's yeah. the kind of thing. It just it has its own its own fan base. Yeah, yeah. Super people are super into chamber music. Yeah. I love chamber music. I'm really into it. I like it too, actually. Oh, it's the best. My my daughter, like I said, was a ballerina, uh-huh. and um, my oldest daughter, and so I would go to dance things, <laughs> and uh, yeah. some of them, I didn't know what was happening. It was torture, right? Yeah, some of them were, were torture. Some yeah. of the stuff. Kid concerts are brutal. <laughs> kid sports is brutal, too. Yeah, some of these weren't kids. <laughs> you know, I, I know, mean, I eventually know. I was getting roped into doing, like, whatever, mm-hmm. some real cultured activities. Yeah. And it wasn't landing with me. It wasn't. Okay. Just, you know, I'm, I'm a bad I, person. I hear you. No, no, you're not a bad person. You're, you're, you're flesh and blood, Jocko. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> awesome. Any awesome. other ones? That's Echo it. Charles? That's it for now. Arthur, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Any closing thoughts, Arthur? Yeah, you know, it's like it, a lot of people are always asking, you know, what's the what's the one thing to remember? And so I was thinking, what's the one thing? There's this study that we've done at Harvard called the Harvard Study of Adult Development that's, that tracked men from the late 1930s until death. And then their kids and then their spouses. And it matched up you know, students at Harvard with people who didn't go to college. So it's socioeconomically diverse. 
And they looked at all the things they did over the course of their lives that helped them end up happy and healthy at the end of their lives. So it's a crystal ball. You know, what do they do? And some of it's, you know, pretty obvious diet and exercise and smoking and drinking. They didn't drink or drank very moderately. They didn't smoke or they quit early. They, they exercised, but not to the point where they neglected their families and they, they, they kept a healthy body weight, but they didn't do yo-yo dieting. Okay. All right. But then they had a way to deal with their problems because everybody's got problems, they had a way to deal with it, like talking to friends or whatever it happened to be. They had a technique for dealing with their worries and problems so it didn't build up. They were lifelong learners and that was really good. But the one, the one of the seven practices that mattered the most by far is that they had close loving relationships. You know, it was they either had a, a, a marriage that they could count on or they or they had really close personal friends or even better, both is what it came down to. And the, the conclusion of that is that happiness is love, full stop. And so that's really the one thing to remember. When you, when, you're, when you don't know what to do, go love somebody. When you don't know what to say, tell somebody, perhaps in not so many words, I love you. When you're, when you're thinking of thoughts that are destructive, turn your thoughts to what you love. Love will bring you happiness. And that's the one thing we can actually all count on. It's the one thing that really matters in our lives. It's the one thing that gives us all a better future. So the last word is basically this. You don't know what to do? Love more. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for your lessons learned. And thanks for sharing your methodologies. And thanks for helping people live better happier lives. Likewise, Jocko. You're doing a great service for a lot of people, and I'm delighted to be some small part of it today. (laughs) Right on. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. And with that, Arthur C. Brooks has left the building. (sighs) Happiness. You seem to like that. I could see. I I look over at you. You're into it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think you know this, where I do enjoy the old like finding out how things work you know mm-hmm. especially if they're just not that real simple to to figure out and i think that's another one <laughs> especially those kind of riddle ones because it's like a riddle right for uh, this one where it's like it's not like the direct easy obvious answer so you'd be like hey what's the key to happiness oh suffering and misery you know like it doesn't seem real it's like counterintuitive a lot of this stuff so it becomes interesting i think well there you go uh Get the books. You guys know the deal. Try and be happier. Choose to be happier. That's kind of what I feel like. Yeah. You can be miserable or you can be happy. That mm. might be some look. You're going through basic SEAL training. You're young, like I was, mm. and you can. You're look. You're going to be wet. You're going to be cold, mm. and you can be wet, cold, and miserable, which is what they tell you you're going to be. Or you can be wet, cold, and kind of happy about the whole scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to be happy. Yeah. And I'm have the, fun with it at a minimum. So even when Bro, you choose when you're not, they see it. Ooh, the instructors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, you mean if you're or your teammates, but, yeah. like your platoon mates? Yeah, they're like, oh, Echo's looking like he's hating life right now. Yeah, that's kind of not cool. It's not cool. Don't want to give off that. No, let's be happy. And then even if you are um, happy during the suffering, when the suffering's over, it's not like the happiness goes away or nothing. It gets better actually. Yeah. For real. Now you got the memory of happiness and you got current happiness. But clearly uh, key components here. We talked about these. And it's always surprising, right? And in, in again in the book, it's like if you do what if you do 
what makes you happy, you're gonna end up not happy. Mm. You know, this is like a lack of discipline. This is the freedom equaling slavery as opposed to discipline equals freedom. Mm. So that's what we gotta do. Well, you made made a really good point a long time ago. And actually, it was such a good point and so simple and so easy to understand that I tell my kids this all the time. And you say, pay now or pay later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, hey, it's going to be easy or and it, and it's going to be hard. You just choose when, you know. So you want to do the pay. The pay is the hard. It's hard to pay. It's easy to collect, right? So if you collect now, you're going to pay later. Mm-hmm. It's going to be way junker, in my opinion. And I explain yeah. why. You know, a lot of it, you know, even if you talk about working out where it's like, hey, I'd rather pay now. She's like, oh, working out is hard. I was like, yeah, working out is hard. But I'll tell you what's harder, being weak. So what's harder when you're thinking about when, you know, when it's time to go to the beach or the pool or whatever, and then you got to think in your all anxiety because, oh, how does my body look or something like this? You know, that's way harder mm-hmm. than working out. Anyway, pay now, pay later. That's a good one. I recommend we pay now. Yep, pay now. Health and discipline. It's going to help you. Uh, deaf reset we got coming. Yep. And you just made a, you made a video. I got a, uh, what is it, a preview of the launch video. Oh, uh, they call it a warning order, warning I guess. Order, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing. So for the deaf reset last year, it was like, like January 1st. Oh yeah, here you go. Jump into it. Mm-hmm. Leif was saying, cause I was, I was telling Leif and the EF team, I was like, Hey, listen, I'm trying to give people a heads up for deaf reset. Cause normally it's like, Oh, it's a new year's resolution. Wait, why don't you just start now? Mm-hmm. Right. Which I've said that kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. I don't wait for a new year's resolution. Start now. Here's the thing, deaf reset starts January 1st. Mm-hmm. If you're not ready for it, it's gonna hurt. You're gonna pay yeah. later. Yeah. So put some investment in now. Leif made the point that like last year's deaf reset, he got he, he got hurt like, oh, yeah. I don't know, a week into it, he had to stand down. What, because he went hard out the gate? He went hard. Yeah. So what I'm saying is prepare for deaf reset now. That means you should be waking up a little bit earlier. You should definitely start working out now. You should get things staged. You should be prepared. Don't go cold into death reset. You don't want none of that. You won't make it. You won't make it. You won't be able to keep it up. So death resets coming January 1st. Prepare for it now. We got workouts and fitness with Jason Kalipa. We got leadership training with Echelon Front. We got discipline directives from me. And we got fuel, obviously, Jocko fuel. So we got a bunch of really good things going to help a lot of people get back on the path. Set the trajectory of your life. Correct the trajectory of your life. Improve the trajectory of your life. Because that's weird. That trajectory word means a lot. Mm-hmm. It's like you're just heading in a direction. Why not make sure that you're heading in the right direction, in a positive direction? That's what your trajectory is. And Def Reset will help reset that trajectory and make it better. So that's what we're doing. Um, Jocko fuel. You're gonna want some Jocko fuel for this evolution for sure. You're gonna want some milk because you're gonna need some to rebuild. Mm-hmm. You're gonna want some hydration because you're gonna sweat. So you got that Jocko hydrate. We got greens, joint warfare for sure. Super krill, just milk, just the whole nine yards. That's what we're doing. Go to JockoFuel.com and get what you need to be ready to be better to be prepared you can order it from jockofuel.com or you can get it from the vitamin shop you can get it from wawa you can get it from gnc military commissaries afes hanford death dash stores in maryland wakefern Shoprite, heb down in tejas meyer harris teeter lifetime fitness shields 
small gyms all over the place. Jiu-jitsu gyms, CrossFit gyms, powerlifting gyms, Globo gyms. If you're going to one of those, if you own one of those and you want to sell Jocko Fuel, go to jfsales at jockofuel.com and get some of that. So there you go. Jockofuel.com. It's true. Also, Origin USA. Don't forget about that. Is Origin giving away? I think they might be giving away a gift card, right, for the DEF reset? Probably. Yeah, I think so. It's a good deal because they got some good stuff. American-made stuff, by the way. I was wearing the, you know, the, the, I don't know, what would you call it? The Moisture Wicking hoodie. Oh, yeah. I don't know the names. Pete always has these cool names for them. But nonetheless, many compliments Mm -hmm. on that one. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. All-American-made. Did I mention that? So I believe you're talking about the Tetralock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, usa.com Get some cool stuff to wear. Get stuff that's made in America. Look, man, that's what we're doing. We're not we're not we're not supporting communism. That doesn't help people be happy. We go look at the communist pictures. You see any happiness over there? You're not gonna see it. You see happiness where there's freedom. So originusa.com brings freedom, brings happiness to the world. Go get it. That's what we're doing. It's true. Also, Jocko Store. If you wanna, if you wanna represent on this path, whether it's Def Reset or beyond, you know, represent discipline equals freedom. That's you go to JockoStore.com. That's where you get your shirts and hats, hoodies, all kinds of merch. Anyway, good stuff on there. Also, shirt locker, new design shirt every month. It's a subscription kind of thing. People mm-hmm. seem to like it. Go on there, check it out. Tell me what you think. Think it's cool? Go ahead and subscribe to that one. It's a good one. <laughs> Everything. ShotcoStore.com. Uh, if you need steak, which you probably do, check out primalbeef.com. Check out ColoradoCraftBeef.com. The best steak delivered to your house. That's what we're doing. Check those out. Also, subscribe to the podcast. Also, check out JockoUnderground.com. It's a little, we're about to record one of those when we get done here. So that's what we do. Adjacent material, we also answer questions all the time that you email in. So check out jockounderground.com. Also YouTube, subscribe to that. Psychological Warfare, flipsidecanvas.com. Dakota Meyer, making cool stuff to hang on your wall. We got a bunch of books, obviously a bunch of books. Uh, Love Your Enemies by Arthur C. Brooks. Build the Life You Want by Arthur C. Brooks and Oprah Winfrey. Um. Strength to strength. He's got a bunch of books, so check those out. And then, of course, I've written a bunch of books, too, so you might want to check those out. They're out there. Especially check out the kids' books. Look, you don't need to be 38 when you learn these lessons. You can learn them when you're five, maybe seven. Way of the Warrior Kid. Go get those books for the kids in your neighborhood. You got that neighbor across the street. He's kind of a delinquent, seems a little bit. He's nine years old. He's hucking rocks at trees and stuff. Yes. Look, I was hucking rocks at trees. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can just let him continue to huck rocks at trees. Next thing he escalates to like mailboxes. Then he's going vehicles. Then he's, you know, see, see where I'm going with this? Bad, bad scene. Warrior kid, get him on the right path. That's what we're doing. Also, Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. Go to echelonfront.com for details on that. That's what we do. We work with companies. We square them away. We help them unify their leadership. So if you need help inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. You can come to one of our live events as well. It's all there, echelonfront.com. We also have online training, online life training is what it is. Look, it's, it's kind of represented as leadership training, but what is leadership training? Leadership is how you interact with other human beings, your friends, your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, and everybody that you work with. And the better you are, with leadership skills, 
the better you're gonna be as a human being. So go to extremeownership.com, check out our courses there. Also, if you wanna help service members active and retired, you wanna help their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got an amazing charity organization. If you wanna donate or you wanna get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, heroesandhorses.org, we got Micah Fink taking, taking our first responders and our veterans up into the mountains where they get lost so they can get found heroesandhorses.org. Also, Jimmy May's got his organization, beyondthebrotherhood.org. So connect with those to help out. And if you want to connect with Arthur, once again, arthurbrooks.com. He's got Twitter, at Arthur Brooks. He's got Instagram, Arthur C. Brooks. YouTube, Arthur Brooks123. And Facebook's at Arthur Brooks. Echo is at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Just be careful. If you go to connect with us looking for happiness, you're not going to find it there. Don't go there looking for happiness. All you're going to find is an algorithm that's going to grab you by the jugular and kill you. So be careful. Thanks once again to all of the military personnel out there around the world right now keeping us safe and secure. We get to do every day what we do because of the sacrifices that you make, and we are grateful. Same goes to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thank you for keeping us safe and secure here at home and everyone else out there. Happiness is not found by doing what is easy or what feels good in the moment, at least not long-term lasting happiness. That's not what we're going for. Sure, you can go feel good right now by eating a donut or having a drink, an alcoholic drink or watching another Netflix program, or scrolling through your social media, you can do those things, but it's not gonna give you the long-term happiness that you're looking for. I say you start with helping others, working hard, and doing the right things for the right reasons. And what I mean by that is basically, if you wanna be happy, I recommend that you go out there and get after it. And until next time, Zeko and Jocko, out.